You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Fabian Nisiesa, and you are listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Welcome to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is X-Force, episode 2, 2A, technically. Uh, This is going to be the Executioner's song, plus a few other extras, covering a period of X-Force from 1992 and 1993. Uh, I am your host, Curtis Findlay. And I am your X-Force co-host, James Salerno. And we have uh, somewhat of a special episode today because, uh, because this is the Executioner's song. It's a really, really big crossover that brings in a bunch of different X titles. So we thought that we'd bring in a bunch of different co-hosts and have kind of a bigger, more special roundtable discussion about that. But before we do that, we have a couple of issues in the X-Force Epic Collection that we're going to discuss first. So James, you want to uh, tell us what we're going to talk about in this episode? Yes, this is the Cable, Blood, and Metal two-part miniseries. This came out in late 1992. The first issue came out uh, in the fall, and uh, the second one, it was actually very late. The second one came out, I think, after Executioner Song was already done. Whoa. But um, yeah, this this is actually um, this is a pretty interesting uh, miniseries right here because if you've read like the initial dozen or so issues of X Force, you'll know that kind of leading up to this epic collection, Cable disappears. He's not actually appearing in X Force at this time, so it actually is kind of like a good reason to have a miniseries for a character because he's not appearing where he normally appears. You know, it's just it's kind of contradictory to what they do, um, you know, much later on where people appear all over the place all the time. But, yeah, this was actually sort of filling a gap in his X-Force appearances. And this is before Cable has his own ongoing series as well. So instead of giving him his own series, yeah, we are, we're getting this special story. And it's interesting that you say that uh, the second issue came out after Executioner's Song because there is a huge reveal in that second issue that plays heavily into a major plot point of Executioner's song. It may have not come out like right after, but it, it did. It definitely didn't come out like when it was supposed to. Huh. Like issue one and issue number two were supposed to be in the can before Executioner's song started. Issue two came out either like halfway through or very close to the end. You know, kind huh. of to the point where what you mentioned before, like the big, uh, the big plot points would have already sort of been passed over. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> That's pretty yeah. wild. Uh, okay, so yeah, you mentioned the cable. Cable's off doing his own thing. So at the the end of the first X Force epic collection, they have um, a big battle where Domino and Cable get separated from the rest of the X Force team, and they say that they're going to go find Tolliver, who's kind of been a thorn in their side for a while. So that's kind of what they're doing in this in this uh, mini series here. And then by the end of the mini series, Cable yeah ends up in the future, and so he's not even you know present at all. But uh, yeah. uh, 
I have to say that I did not enjoy this miniseries. Really? For, for a number of reasons. I did not enjoy it because maybe maybe it's just because of J.R.J.R.'s art. And there are certain times when I really like John Romita Jr. And there's certain times when I just don't like him. I love him. I absolutely love him when he was doing um, uh, Spider-Man, uh, both in the 80s and in the, you know, the early 2000s with Straczynski. But this one just didn't do it for me. I found that it was overly convoluted and too many sideways pages. And there wasn't a big enough distinction between the flashbacks and the modern day. I know that he used the device of making all of his borders black whenever he was in a flashback. But for me, that distinction wasn't obvious enough. And so there were times when I was reading whole scenes and I'm like, hold on a second, what time am I in again? (laughs) And it just made it so that it wasn't an enjoyable reading experience for me. Did you get that? Um, Or how did how did you feel about this? I I could totally get it. Um, I almost wonder if this was maybe something that was uh, planned to be more issues. Um, You know, the fact that issue two came out late and, you know, John Romita Jr., he's usually a pretty reliable guy. He doesn't miss deadlines, you know. So I almost wonder, you know, what, what else was going on behind the scenes here. As far as like, uh, you know, all the um, the jumping back and forth and, you know, going to the future, going to the current, going to the past. Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely kind of hard to follow. I noticed, though, that uh, I'm probably like a bigger uh, Fabian Nicieza fan than most. Uh, he's the guy who wrote this. The thing that I like about this is that Nicieza is one of those writers that really does world building well. He's tackling a lot of stuff that's actually happening like in in our real world, like um, the Iranian hostage crisis, the Afghanistan issue in the 80s. But then um, he also he likes to uh, drop like little clues about um, what else is going on in the Marvel Universe. And he's kind of one of the he's always one of those writers who's not afraid to bring in, you know, just random references from some Captain America annual from 10 years ago or something. And yeah. I kind of like that because like, I like being rewarded as a reader, like, like seeing things that, um you know, pop up again. And it's like, okay, like it kind of makes you believe that, yeah, like the Marvel universe is like a cohesive unit and these guys are acting, you know, within uh, the parameters of, uh, of that world. So are you talking about six pack changing their name? I love that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah. anybody, um, S- Silver Sable, she's a mercenary that first appeared in like uh, the Spider-Man issues in the 80s. And uh, she had like uh, her own uh, mercenary team called the Wild Pack. And I believe like uh, she kind of ran like this um, country that uh, this small European country, Simcaria, like, a, you know, like one of those fake uh, Marvel countries where there's like dozens of them in yeah. Central Europe somehow. Latveria. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They all kind of coexist like in that one spot. Yeah, so she had her own group called the Wild Pack, and there was a cease and desist order uh, from the Wild Pack to uh, to tell t- uh, Cable's mercenary group, who was also called the Wild Pack, to stop using the name. So it's like it's just <laughs> yeah. like it's it's one of those things that like they didn't have to do, but like it just nope. kind of it, it makes you feel like okay, yeah, this is cool, this is part of something bigger. So like I, I like that, and they they force them to rename themselves a six pack. <laughs> But the nice thing also is that it's a very, very specific period of time. Because uh, so there's two timelines kind of going on here. One is present day, a present day story. And then the others, it's not another story happening in one period of time. We're getting little snippets of like 10 years ago and seven years ago and five yeah. years ago. And so the the moment where Six Pack has to change their name 
is a very specific point in time when, because Wildpack wouldn't have existed 10 years ago, but they did exist five years ago. And so it's like, <laughs> it, yeah. it, the, he paid attention to that. Like you said, Nisiesa really, really thought about where he wanted to place that. And, um, and it, it was quite clever. I thought it was really, really good <laughs> as well. Yeah. No, and I mean, I'm a guy who like reads all the official handbooks and stuff like that. And I I totally get that's not everybody's cup of tea. But like, so <laughs> so when they do stuff like that, like that's, I, I appreciate it. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> um, can you describe the plot of this two-part story? There's kind of yeah. two purposes of it, I think. So what, what how, do, yeah. how do you describe it? Yeah, I'm going to go through, um, kind of summarize like uh, issue one and issue two here, because it does kind of go all over the place. Both of these issues are framed with like uh, shield files and like uh, files from like uh, Henry Peter Gyrick about who Cable is, yep. why he's an outlaw and like all these bad things that he's done. So that sort of gets us started. And then we see that um, in the six pack, um, this would have been back in, I guess, 1979, because they're going to Iran during the hostage crisis. And uh, they want it to appear uh, that they're freeing hostages, but they're actually there for uh, a corporate sabotage mission. They go back, they blow some stuff up. We kind of get introduced to the team. It's uh, Cable, Domino, Grizzly, Kane, GW Bridge, who later uh, becomes a, a head honcho of S.H.I.E.L.D., and then another guy called Hammer. Um, so it's kind of just setting the stage for who these guys are. And then we kind of jump forward to today, and uh, members of Strife's uh, Mutant Liberation Front are stealing some artifacts that kind of look like they're related to uh, the villain apocalypse. They're going to museums and taking them for reasons that aren't quite clear yet. Cable goes and he kind of interrupts one of these missions and he actually ends up killing uh, one of the members of the MLF. So, you know, they always said that X-Force and Cable, they were, you know, they were a dangerous version of the X-Men. They were like a perversion of Xavier's dream. So you actually kind of see that here. So that was um, that that was kind of good to make him stand out as a character, and we just kind of jump around a little bit more. We see that uh, GW Bridge, you know, from the six pack, he's now with Shield, and uh, he alerts another six pack member in the present day, the one called uh, Kane. He lets him know that Cable's, uh, you know, out and about, and uh, it appears that uh, Kane and then. then Another six-pack member, Hammer, are two soldiers who, they hold a grudge against Cable. Something happened in the past to where uh, Cable, it looks like he may have screwed them over or hurt them somehow, and uh, they're out for some vengeance. And uh, I'm going to stop and breathe for a minute, Chris, because yeah, I know sure. there's a lot going on here, so I just want to give you a chance to uh, to fill in any blanks, sir. Um, I think that uh, we already know Kane from early issues of X-Force. Yes. This miniseries is kind of serving the purpose to tell his story about why he's so mad at, at Cable. Because we do know from those issues that there's something going on, but we didn't really get the backstory. So this is telling that story. Um, I do like the little details like the only reason we really know that these weapons have a ties to apocalypse well i mean they they do they do state it but if you look at the hilt on the the sword like apocalypse's face is carved yes. into it <laughs> yep. little things like that it's like you, if you don't look carefully you won't notice that little little clues like that it's kind of fun and you know what too i don't think that they established all of uh, the egyptian stuff yet with apocalypse he definitely he wasn't en sabinor yet that name came later on so hmm. yeah i know that, okay. like looking at that through modern eyes like you might think you know egypt apocalypse but yeah i'm, I'm pretty sure that was still kind of a mystery at this point yeah uh, okay, yeah, you want to keep on going? Yeah, yeah. So uh, there was a mission that happened um, 
sometime in the past uh, in Afghanistan. So we're kind of going back to Afghanistan here. And uh, Cable was working uh, for this guy, Tolliver. Um, and if you've been reading X-Force, um, you've seen that name dropped a lot. Tolliver, he's an arms dealer. I think he's a drug dealer, too. He's a bad guy. Uh, we never really see him. We don't know who he is. Um, I believe he was, um, I think they like uh, they blew up a ship that he was in in one of those X-Force issues. And we saw that like his face was just like a rubber mask. Yeah, so that's right. That kind of, <laughs> so his name's popping up here again. So we know that there's some kind of history between Cable, his six-pack, and uh, Tolliver. And uh, so they were on a mission for Tolliver in Afghanistan. Um, looks like there was some kind of drug ring, drug yeah, smuggling. They're, they're checking old. out some opium yeah. fields. Yep. And then... Um, it appears that Cable is actually taking the group a little bit farther than what uh, Tolliver's contract asked him to do. It looks like he, maybe he's like going after some kind of personal vendetta. So we're kind of left with that mystery. We jump back to the present where uh, Kane is uh, hunting down Cable. And uh, he ends up uh, running into a hologram um, on his hunt for Cable. And it shows that uh, the villain Strife, the leader of uh, the Mutant Liberation Front, Strife and Cable have the same face. And um, I think that kind of ends the first issue. Um, so, Curtis, did you, did you have anything to comment on with, for those events? Yeah, because it's just a hologram that Kane is showing Cable, there's no guarantee that, you know, Cable's going to believe Kane or whatever. Um, so it's, it's gr- I like the tension that it builds. I think that it does yeah. a really good job of, you know, Cable doesn't, he has no clue what's going on. He doesn't even know why Kane's attacking him or anything like that. And it's like, so he's just kind of defending himself. I really do think that, I think that I would enjoy this issue if we had a different artist not because I think it looks ugly, but I think that the storytelling, the way that he lays out his panels is, is just not as easy to follow as I want to. This scene in the snow with Kane is fine. It's the war stuff with the six pack in Afghanistan that makes it a lot harder to follow. When he's adding so many characters, when he's fighting against the Mutant Liberation Front, it's just wild. Yeah, yeah. There's um, there's there's definitely a, a ton uh, going on here. That might be yeah. why I like his Spider-Man work better because he maybe I think he's better working with just one character. Um, I also am not a fan of of his work in X-Men, and you know I'm just thinking now that maybe it's because I don't like him on team books. Really, oh, okay. that that could be it. I was gonna say I actually kind of like John a lot during during this time period. You, you can watch him progress as an artist, like when he goes yeah. from Danny X-Men to Daredevil. Like Daredevil. He's, oh, I love him starts, on Daredevil. Yeah, he's doing like all this weird, like surrealistic stuff that yeah. like Anna Senti's doing where every issue is like this bizarre acid trip kind of yeah. thing. So <laughs> yeah. His uh his art starts to get really abstract during that time. And then um I know he goes uh he does a little stint on Iron Man, he does the uh the Punisher War Zone. So he was he was very like a uh, stylized, blocky looking characters, John Romita at this point. And um I think the reason why I like it is because uh I like the way he draws war and like grunts. Like these are just like a bunch of dirty like soldiers like going from like a uh, battle to battle. And uh, I think he gets like that that griminess like of the characters really well. Yeah. Like uh, he's he's very good at drawing like um you know like it, for, from what we've seen so far of like all these X Force characters like I mean they've they've been drawn by you know like Rob Liefeld and his imitators. 
So like, it's actually, it's kind of cool to see like uh, an artist actually draw them like as like, you know, three dimensional characters with like, you know, and all these, uh, these pouches and like weapons that they carry <laughs> kind of feel like they, mm-hmm. they feel like they're actual objects. Like there's weight in what John Romita Jr. draws. Yeah. And, um, yeah. Yeah. I, I know I'm that. probably in the minority. Like a lot of people don't like this period of his artwork. I'm a fan. <laughs> I'll admit it. Well, and like I said, I don't think that it's it looks ugly. I just think that his, it's his storytelling that yeah. suffers. Yeah, okay, let's keep on going over to the second issue then. Sure. Yep, so kind of jumping forward here, Kane and Cable, it looks like they made up because Cable uh, and Strife, you know, like they share the same face. So Kane realizes that, you know, maybe um, it wasn't Cable that, uh, you know, I had problems with in the past. And that's, that's a theme that's going <laughs> to follow around Cable quite a bit. Uh, yeah. So they go to uh, they go to Clan Yoshida in Japan. There's another artifact there that's going to be uh, you know a major plot point, and um, this is kind of what I said before about the world building. Um, we know Clan Yoshida because we've seen that place before in X Men with uh, Sunfire, uh, his yep. family, uh, Mariko Yoshida, and uh, the Silver Samurai. And um, they actually reference that uh, Mariko died in uh, Wolverine issues that came out uh, shortly before this, I believe. Right. So that was kind of cool. They're referring uh, they're referring to events, the you know, kind of reward you as a reader, make make you feel like you know th- these things are it's important if you pay attention to the details, which I like. They make a deal with Silver Samurai to install a decoy mask. So they're going to take uh, the real mask uh, artifact and put a fake uh, in place there. Do you have anything uh, on that one? No, I like the cameo. I think it's just, uh, like you said, a nice touch to bring some familiarity into a brand new character. Like Cable, even though he's been around for a couple of years by this point, he's still an, he's still a mysterious guy. And all of his world, all of his like you know domino and and strife still unknown. So I think including something like this is a nice buy-in for the X fans who are maybe on the fence about Cable still. And they're like, oh, no, 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 I I enjoy this because there's some familiarity here. I I totally get it because Silver Samurai has been around for a while. And um, everybody in this miniseries, Cable, they've all, his six-pack domino, everybody's strife, they've all been introduced like one or two years before this. So introducing a new character and having that character gain traction is is hard enough, but introducing like twenty characters at the yeah. same time, <laughs> yeah. that's that's very that's very hard. So um, it is. It's I I do appreciate like a lot of uh, the little things that Anisieza does. Like he gives like these little uh, bickering rivalries between them. Like we can tell that uh, Domino, you know, she takes no crap, and Grizzly's kind of like the big dumb guy. They joke back and forth, and yeah. It's it's kind of nice to see that you know he's he's basically been handed like these these cipher characters, but he's you know he's trying to trying to make them distinct and and give them backgrounds. I think this is this miniseries is a real test about do we care about Cable when we take the new mutants out of the picture? Yeah, true. Yeah, because this is really the first time he's kind of just on his own with his own uh, mythos and yep. backstory. Yeah. Okay, so. Um, we're kind of jumping around a little bit more here in time. Uh, Tolliver uh, appears to also have strife on his payroll for back uh, back in that Afghanistan mission. Does it seem weird to you that strife would be a stooge just protecting an opium route like this? It, it, it seems below his pay grade. Yeah, like he gets <laughs> dressed up with this metal armor with a lot of yeah. spikes so he can... Like he's like a, a wannabe Dr. Doom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it just seems sort of weird that um, that he, he's like that. And I think that um, I, I found this because he appears in some issues of X 
factor around this time as well, just before Executioner's Song. And in that one, there's one scene where the Mutant Liberation Front is on one side of Zero's portal and X-Factor's on the other, and they're playing tug-of-war with Strife in the middle. Like, Strife, they're, they're trying to pull <laughs> Strife. One X-Factor has hands, and Mutant Liberation Front has his legs, and they're trying to pull him through the portal. And it's like, really? They're, again, it's like, this big menacing guy shouldn't be treated like a rag doll in this. It's like kind of demeaning to his character, but they're playing it up for laughs. I kind of think they just didn't know what to do with Strife at this I, point. They had the mystery. They had the mystery about the faces, but they didn't know at all how they were handling the character. And and you're going to see that so many times over like uh, this like early 90s period of X-Men where somebody was introduced as a mystery Maybe they didn't <laughs> yeah. quite have that figured out yet on paper and just, just run with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, you know, in, in all fairness, Claremont did that a lot too. There was a lot of things that were, and that was, you know, that's what kept people coming back, you know, and you yeah. know, he had the title for 15 years or so. So, well, yeah, um, he had the benefit of being able to play the long game. That's I true. mean, yeah. Scott Lobdell kind of did too, because he was on X-Men for a long time as well, but you had so many X titles and so many writers dealing with things, whereas Claremont, he had it easy. It was him it was doing that. Um, yeah. And he had New Mutants as well, which he was writing, right. or he worked closely with Louis Simonson. Yeah, um, yeah. But you don't get that benefit in this era of the X-Men with so yeah, many titles. A lot, of, a lot of cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> this is interesting, too, if you paid attention to New Mutants. In Mexico today... Uh, Strife goes to visit, um, it looks like it's Richter's dad's brother. Now, yeah. if you remember, um, Richter left the New Mutants. He hated Cable because he thought that Cable killed his dad. And now it's kind of becoming obvious as to what's really going on is there's this other evil guy out there that looks like Cable that's doing a lot of bad things. So, and uh, Richter's dad's brother looks like he, he makes some kind of a, you know, mention to that, you know, you, you killed my, you killed my brother. Yeah, so that's good. That's, that's, that's um, good. I don't know if that if that comes across well if you're just reading this miniseries, but if you were reading New Mutants a couple of years earlier, that definitely would make sense. That's a good point because I totally missed that. Yeah, and it's yeah. um, Richter too. Like the actual the the superhero Richter is R I C T O R, but his last name is actually Richter R I C H T E R, mm-hmm. and uh, they just use that name here, and it's Mexico, and he's you know we if you read New Mutants, you know he's from Mexico, so you kind of had to piece that together. <laughs> but I, I could <laughs> totally see how that you might get a little bit lost if uh, you weren't paying attention to all that stuff. So they they could have maybe given like a footnote there or something. Um, so we see there's some kind of deal going on there. And then uh, we're, we're jumping around again. There's a, there's a lot of locations. <laughs> I want to see John Romita Jr.'s, like his drawing table at this point in time, like all his photo <laughs> references, <laughs> because now we're going to Singapore. No and kidding. In, uh, yeah, in Singapore, it seems that um, Cable's bringing his mercenary team into his own personal conflict with Strife. So it's not just like a business deal anymore. So there's a lot of mistrust. Uh, that the six pack has and what cable is doing. And then we go to uh, back to Mexico uh, in the Yucatan Peninsula where cable and Kane are uh, hunting down strife today. And uh, they're ambushed by uh, the mutant liberation front. Yeah. Hammer and uh, Kane, they get, uh, or actually I think this was in the past. I'm sorry, Chris. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> yeah. The, see what I'm talking about? The past yeah. and the present. The Mexico thing, correct me if I'm wrong. That was a few years in the past, but not as far back as Afghanistan, if, I, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> it's... So Mexico is all happening modern day. Okay. 
All of all of Mexico is modern day. Oh, okay. You know why? That that's my bad because hold on, hold on to your seat for a second, Curtis. Because <laughs> okay. we, we have to jump to Uruguay now. Okay. <laughs> so there was another mission in Uruguay years ago where Hammer and Kane got sacrificed, where Cable uh, yeah. was kind of put into a position where um, there was a disc of some kind of information. We don't know what this disc is. And uh, he had to save a disc. He had to prevent it from getting into Strife's hands. And it was either save the disc or save Kane. And uh, he chose the disc. Hammer is like, what are you doing? Like, you know, you you betrayed us. He goes to shoot, um, you know, Hammer blocks the blast and Hammer ends up getting paralyzed. Kane gets crippled by Strife. And uh, yeah, so that kind of, um, that thing that happened in the past, uh, kind of now we realize why there was such a beef there with uh, with Kane and Hammer and uh, Cable and why his group doesn't trust him anymore. Yeah, so that was the, that's the definitely the defining moment right there. He decides to just to forsake all of his team completely. And then the other pivotal moment being in the present when Strife takes off his helmet and reveals that he is also Cable. Yep. Uh, so yeah, big moments there. I think the ending, if you can make it past all of the jumping around to the different missions <laughs> and keeping track of where they are and who's doing what, these last few pages are kind of the most important. So if you've made it this far, even if you don't quite understand the rest, as long as you get what's going on in these last few pages, you're, yeah. you're good. <laughs> so just just the basic gist of it, Cable is, um, you know, he, he's a soldier for soldier for fortune. He doesn't have the best morals, but he, he's not a bad guy. Um, he's obviously not doing this to, you know, hurt his friends or sell them out for money. There's something very serious that's going on here that, you know, he cannot compromise no matter what. Yeah. So we're adding a little bit of you know layers to uh, to his motivations here, and um, so kind of going uh, going back to the present in Mexico, the, the, the situation with uh, Strife and Kane is repeating itself now, where Strife is threatening to you know either kill or cripple Kane again, and um, this time Cable burns the disc to save his friend, and uh, Strife uh, then escapes. He's clearly plotting something to do with Apocalypse. And like these, uh, these artifacts and whatnot that he's been gathering have something to do with, uh, with that particular villain. And um, Cable and Kane are both in uh, extremely rough shape after this. And Cable gets them both uh, to the future. Um, he's got some teleportation, uh, time travel technology. So they go, um, I believe it's like two or 3,000 years into the future. Um, yeah. To a place called... Uh, and I promise this is the last new location we're introducing during this series. <laughs> it's called it's called, uh, it's called Apple Crust, and uh, I thought that was kind of cool because you know if, if you're familiar with New York City, you know it's called the Big Apple. Yeah. And uh, I, apparently in this future, New York City fell 700 years ago, so it's you know like the crust of the apple or whatever. Yeah. Very and, cool. And uh, every, everything I, I like the design of this city. It looks you know it looks very very futuristic. And, um, you know, Cable and Kane are kind of, you know, putting their past behind him here. Cable, you know, fixes up Kane's arms and makes him, you know, look, look like a human again. And uh, as we kind of pan out towards the end, we see that in Applecrust, uh, there's a gigantic statue of Apocalypse. That who that's supposed? Oh, yeah, with the A on the, the belt. Okay. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So we kind of we kind of pieced together a little bit here. I know Apoc even Apocalypse wasn't that fleshed out yet at this point. Like yeah. I said before, like all the Egypt stuff, like that kind of comes later. And um, the future stuff, I know they I think they hinted at that a little bit in X Factor, but this becomes a big uh, big part of uh, the Cable story uh, going later on. We uh, later on we learn that um, 
apocalypse uh, overtook the future that uh, Cable came from. And it was like a, you know, a hellish future where he was, you know, the ultimate ruler of the world. So we're getting our, we're getting some glimpses of that here. Not to do with the Age of Apocalypse storyline. Right. That's not the same thing. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So I do like the parallel story of Strife holding Kane uh, hostage for the disc in both of these time periods. But this is where, this is another instance of me being confused because it's like, I didn't realize that we are flipping back and forth between these time periods. It's like, why is he still holding on to to Kane? And it's like, the only real difference is that, you know, Kane has bandages on his head in one of them. Even (laughs) like, he's even still wearing this like red clothes and, I didn't find it to be a distinct enough difference to to guide me through the fact that I'm looking at a different time period. Yeah, um, I I totally get it. Um, the Curtis, I I I, I was kind of just hot take here, just came into my mind. Sure. Um, are you are you familiar with uh, the the sequel to uh, the Godfather movie? Yes. What kind of? Okay. Yep. Well, there's the um there's a somebody did like an edit out there where they actually put the entire thing together chronologically. Okay. I al- I almost wonder. If this miniseries, if you did that to, the, to this miniseries, <laughs> next, would it make more sense? Because I think all the pieces are there, but I, I totally get how somebody, I mean, I was just looking at my notes, like reading this and I was like, well, wait a minute. And I just read this yesterday. So it's, I, I understand how someone could get confused with all the jumping around. Yeah. Maybe if issue one dealt with all of the flashback stuff. And we ended with Cable leaving his team to be buried underground or whatever. Yeah. Like that's the cliffhanger. And then the second issue, flash forward to present day, history repeats itself or Kane catches up with them or whatever. And history yeah, repeats that, itself. You have that Kane strife ending at the end of each issue and you still can tell that story. Yeah. That might've been cool. I, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> that's a good, that's a good thought. That's a good thought. Yeah. Something to think about, I guess. Uh, wow. Well. <laughs> Yeah, you know, overall, talking through it, I think, is an important part of the process that I just didn't get when reading it, because there's a lot of great stuff in this miniseries, like a lot of great stuff. Uh, the The idea, the concepts are really good. I think I have a different, a new appreciation for it, having had this conversation with you, James. So thank yeah. you for that. <laughs> well, if I if I can find these in a dollar bin somewhere, I'm gonna like go and cut them up and see if I can make like a director's that, cut. Of that's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I also Curtis, I own this back when I only owned like twelve comics total. Oh, so yeah. I read I read this like four hundred times when I was a kid. So okay, was, so you're very yeah. familiar yeah, with it yeah. as well. That's um. That, that's a that's a criticism of Nicieza that uh, kind of follows him throughout his career is that sometimes he gets a little too cutesy with like the complicated like jumping back and forth and trying to get this object and that object you know they call it like the MacGuffin object yeah, right so you can definitely see some of that here okay. but um I did like how it set up Executioner's song yep um I love when they play around in the Marvel universe as a as like a whole and showing some uh, like uh, the geopolitics of the Marvel universe so that part I really enjoyed I always thought that he did a good job with that stuff. Well, let's move on to our next part of our episode, which is going to be 
uh, Executioner's Song, the multi-part crossover that features a bunch of different X titles. We have some special guests here today. Let's hear from uh, James, Lars, and Jared. This is going to be a roundtable discussion with everybody. Let's just start one at a time, and I want you to introduce yourself and tell me when you started collecting comics, and have you read Executioner's Song before? Uh, why don't we start with James? Hey, uh, James, everyone. Um, I started reading comics in 1993, so a couple months after this crossover was uh, coming out in publication time. This was probably one of the uh, the first comics crossovers that I went back and looked for the back issues for, uh, because this story was still uh, so fresh on everybody's mind at that time that uh, you know I had to go go back and figure out uh, you know what was going on in in this crazy X Men universe, and then. You know, all the trading cards and whatever that came with it uh, made it even cooler. And then, yeah, this is uh, pretty much one of those stories that kind of just got me hooked. Uh, love at first sight, I guess. Nice. Uh, how about you, Lars? Well, uh, I might be the oldest and leatheriest uh, member of the group here. So my first comic book ever was John Byrne's last issue of Uncanny X-Men, which is the one where the demon creature invades the mansion on Christmas happy holidays, and tries to murder Kitty Pride, And it's pretty grotesque and pretty violent, and I cannot imagine why my mother thought that it was a portal into Satanism. Um, so yeah. I... <laughs> sorry, it's true. X-Men is my uh, first great love. I read it pretty steadily for many years, and then I kind of lapsed a bit in later... Later Claremont starts to kind of go off the rails some... And I kept dipping in and out. I was always aware of it. But yes, I read all of Executioner's Song when it first came out. And how about you, Jared? Hi, uh, I'm Jared Abrahamson. I've been reading comics since, I don't know, probably, uh, I guess it was about the time this, uh, <laughs> this storyline came out. When I, when I started, I read Ex Executioner's Song before, going back years and years I didn't have all of the issues uh, growing up. I just had a, a handful, so I didn't get the whole story until I bought the the trade. You know, I was in high school, I guess. So you know, probably five years after this came out. Um, yeah, and and I have. I'm Curtis. I'm sure everybody knows. I have only read four chapters of this this series I, I started collecting comics in the late '80s and uh, didn't really jump onto the X Men. Uh, well, and especially didn't jump onto X-Force or X-Factor or any of those other X-Books. I was mostly kind of a Spider-Man guy. But when X-Men number one hit the stands and it was super popular, I spent my measly allowance and uh, bought a bunch of those issues. So I, I have, I, I looked back in my boxes just before I got on this, this show here and I have all of the X-Men chapters of Executioner's Song plus chapter one, the Uncanny X-Men issue. And that's all I've read. I've read four random chapters of this this miniseries when I was a kid. And well, um, Curtis, you, yeah. you know, everybody bought those issues thinking that you know eventually they would get rich off them and send their kids to college. <laughs> so, do, do you expect to you know sell these valuable um, items, which are like gold, to send your kids to school? I guess it depends on what kind of school my kids want to go to. <laughs> oh boy, yeah, it's uh, they're just sitting in a the box there doing nothing, and I, you know, I try even putting them up on 
Craigslist or whatever, and no one, no one cares. No one cares about... There was just so many of these comics out there. This was the height of X-Men popularity. And uh, the, the 90s, the early 90s, were just a massive explosion for, for X-Men. And because of that, for Marvel... Uh, even though Marvel was going through their own financial crisis at the time, this Executioner's Song was one of the first trade paperbacks that Marvel put out in the early 90s. You remember that trade paperback with a, it had a white, kind of a white cover with, I think, a Joe Mad drawing on the on the front? I was going to say, I remember the one with, uh, they used the strife artwork from uh, Jay Lee's X Factor, and it was like a white uh, border. They did a few. Yeah. I will just say that I very much remember the trade paperback, and I kind of recall the reproduction quality not being great. But you know, at the time, you were so glad to get a collected edition of anything. Um, I still have my very old trade paperback of the Dark Phoenix saga because my grandfather bought it for me. Oh, wow, and of cool. course, the reproduction, like the coloring, is you know on the whole terrible. But you were glad to just have it. Absolutely. Back then, they were still doing the four color printing process, uh, and so. Nowadays, it looks much slicker. Uh, I do want to talk a little bit. Um, this story, Executioner Song, is now being reprinted in X Force Epic Collection Volume 2. And uh, soon it's also going to be in X Men Epic Collection Volume 21. They're both called Executioner Song. And the reproduction in these ones, the coloring at least, is not my favorite. And I find that. Um, this era of of comics, if you're not paying close attention, if you're not getting high enough quality scans, there can be some some rough parts. So if you have the Epic Collection, I just want to show you, um, if you turn to the very first issue, the very first chapter of this story, Uncanny X-Men number 294, and you look at Cable's pants, and they're covered in polka dots. Yes. Yes, they're they're very striped. They're stripy without meaning to be stripy. And the uh, the shadow underneath Xavier, um, because this cover uses a uh, like a, a screen tone to give off a gray effect, and gray is not a color that's naturally reproduced in the four color printing process, and so you have to make it up with little dots. And if you don't get a good enough quality scan of those little dots, if they're not perfectly round, then when you go to resize the image it creates what's called a moray pattern, where it's, it looks like little polka dots. And that's how it looks in this book. And you can find examples of this moray pattern all throughout this collection, which is unfortunate. It doesn't overtake it like in some other epic collections. It's even worse, but it's most, mostly visible on the covers because the covers try to be a lot fancier with the coloring. And also they are resized slightly smaller to give a border around the side, around the edges. Yeah, but, this is the pretty much the swan song for like uh, that Zipatone uh, style of uh, you know the coloring like that because they go full digital within like a year or two. That's true. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, once uh, once we hit nineteen ninety four, it's pretty much all. It's it, they use a hybrid for a little while um, because it's digital, but they still do color separations for for four color printing process. And so some of the early, uh, it, some of the early stuff you find in 1994-95, you'll still get the moray pattern. But then once you get past 96-97, things start to look a lot better in terms of reproduction. <laughs> it's, yeah. Yeah. I think what's interesting is that everything you describe. I'm looking at a uh, Kindle copy on my iPad. 
uh, and yeah. everything you describe is there as well. Um, well for they, sure. they, 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 you know, I, I don't know if they've kept it out of authenticity or they couldn't be bothered to pay someone to recolor it. But yes, it is all there in its um, uh, stripy, grimy glory. What's fun with the digital is you can you can take your fingers and zoom the image in and out and in, in and out, and the stripes get bigger and smaller, and the little dots get bigger and smaller. Can you? Can you try that and see for yourself? Uh, I am trying, but that would require me to zero in on Cable's crotch, which I will, um, <laughs> you know, just I will show some dignity and refrain from doing. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> respect and dignity—that's what I'm all about. Okay, so I want to talk about before we jump into the issues. I want to talk about what is happening in the world of X Men in all of the X titles to bring us to the point where we need to have a huge multi-title crossover. James, do you want to tell us what's happening in the X-Force world? Yeah, sure. So this is, uh, we're still only, you know, about a year uh, into X-Force. And as everybody who's familiar with X-Force knows, that was kind of Rob Liefeld's uh, sort of pet project there that they basically just gave him, um, you know, all the uh, all the artists that eventually formed uh, what became Image Comics. Um, you know, they're kind of all given their own little projects here in the X-Men universe and then some other areas. But, you know, a year into it, they're gone. So we're kind of scrambling to find a new creative teams here and find a new direction for this line. And uh, X-Force gets rid of Cable a few issues before that. He doesn't die, but like something happens where he's missing from the team. And uh, the team is kind of sort of just on their own at this point, uh, just going on random, uh, random adventures, you know, being uh, fugitives from the, the law and uh, S.H.I.E.L.D. is after X-Force for uh, their association with Cable. That's uh, that's kind of the gist of it. Yeah, uh, Cable's in the future. He he takes a little little trip to the future, and so we'll see him come back in one of these issues coming up here. Uh, how about you, Lars? What's happening in the world of X-Men at the moment? Well, this is, in a way, the point at which they kind of have too many X-Men, and they've split them between, you know, the uncanny X-Men title and the, you know, adjective list. X-Men title. So this is kind of a coming together of all the characters as opposed to them being split off. There's, I mean, well, and, and actually we'll talk about this. The first part of Executioner's Song serves as kind of to check in with all the different characters and what the status quo is. And yeah. not a great deal is going on in the X-Men's lives. Quite a bit has been going on in X-Force and Cable's life. Um, or, again, the Cable two-parter, which I know you've discussed elsewhere. But, yeah, there's just a heck of a lot of X-Men about the place um, on two different teams. Yeah, I would say that uh, out of all of the parts, um, X-Men actually kind of plays the least role in the lead-up. There's a lot of lead-up in X-Force and there's a lot of lead-up in X-Factor. But uh, X-Men, they kind of just joined the party a little bit late. Uh, Jared, why don't you get us up to speed on what's happening in the world of X-Factor? Yeah, so in X-Factor, um, the, they did face off with the, the Nasty Boys and the, uh, the Mutant Liberation Front uh, a couple of times. They did have a confrontation with Strife where they stole stole his glove but the issues right before this mostly had to deal with uh, them tracking down the group called the expatriates which those mutants do show up in each of the x-factor issues in this crossover but it doesn't really play a big part in in the ongoing story yeah, I think uh, the the other important things to know is that Apocalypse is presumed dead. 
Mr. Sinister is also presumed dead, and so they're kind of meeting up with these guys. Uh, Mr. Sinister revealed himself just before this in the pages of X Factor, and uh, what is the other thing I want to say here? Uh, in the Cable miniseries, Cable just found out that Strife looks like him. Yes. And that that's an important little piece of information. Nobody else knows that Cable looks like Strife. Yes, but I'm going to want to talk about that quite a bit, um, unfortunately. Okay. Also, it should also be just be mentioned the real world, what's going on, because we briefly mentioned that this is like about a year-ish after the great big X-Men number one, the, the Jim Lee, Chris Claremont X-Men number one. So I know that for a lot of people who are a bit younger than me, they're, as much like James, they're getting into X-Men in this period. And I think that's one of the things that has kept Executioner's song rather prominent and selling so well in print. So, you know, if I'm less than flattering about it at times, I know that I'm being critical sometimes of something that to some people was at a very influential age. And that's a big key reason why they like it. So I, I appreciate that for them. Wasn't the uh, animated series on about the time that this crossover came out or... I mean, I'm not exactly sure which came first, but it, I think these were, this came out about the same time as the animated series, right? Probably around fall. the same time, yeah. Yeah, fall of 1992. Yep, that was right when this came out. Wow. And the it, it cannot be underestimated how much the cartoon launched the X-Men's prominence. X-Men, of course, had been an enormous hit in comics prior to this. I mean, Uncanny X-Men by Chris Claremont is basically the comic book of the 1980s. However, it still hadn't, didn't have any mainstream prominence to the point that I remember very distinctly there was a member of the University of Iowa basketball team who was so um, uh, wonderful, they called him the X-Man. And when sportscasters would talk about this, they felt the need to pause and explain to the audience who the X-Men were. This is in the 1980s <laughs> when yeah, the comic yeah. is a huge hit. But the cartoon really ratcheted things up. It's true, yeah. Uh, to the point where Cable starts to make appearances in the cartoon not too uh, long after the, sh the show starts. Actually, it probably was the second season, wasn't it? I think, but... Okay, so I have some listener comments. I asked on Facebook and on Twitter and on Instagram for people to give their comments about uh, about this story and about uh, the X Factor epic collections in general. Thumbs up 1981 says this story, along with the death of Superman, pretty much cemented my lifelong love for the medium of comics. I was 11 in December of 1992 and remember reading the last four parts in the car on a road trip to visit my grandparents for Christmas that year. Easily one of my favorite X crossovers. Couldn't put them down. I'm glad that this epic includes the Cable miniseries. It helps give the story a context I didn't notice before. Why I love epics. I reread this recently when the epic collection was published as an adult and was a bit more disturbed by Strife's treatment of Scott and Jean. He was definitely working through some issues. <laughs> Great epic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks for that comment. Uh, we have one from Sean. He says, I really enjoyed this era of X-Men and thought that Lobdell Nicieza and Harris did a good job keeping it all together after Claremont left. I liked how this story started small in X-Force and it actually had a resolution in the crossover. I enjoyed the filling in of the Cable backstory while not letting us know who he was, although we all knew who he was. It was a, it's some pretty good art too. 
Uh, Josh says, I avoided this era of the X-Universe like the plague as a kid, despite my love for the 90s cartoon. I didn't like the art and found things very confusing. The epics being a great way to jump into reading unfamiliar stuff that they are, I found myself quite enjoying this era after all these years. As 12-part crossovers go from the 90s, this is pretty good. A better volume than volume one of X-Force, mainly due to the zero Liefeld art and layouts. <laughs> we, no somebody had to put a... Nobody, somebody had to put a Liefeld dig in there somewhere, right? Yeah, the, the interesting point is, of course, when we talk about, you know, when he says Claremont left. Well, yes, this is true, but what seems to be increasingly the case is that, you know, Jim Lee's voice was getting so big and some of the art, other artists' voice was getting so big. I mean, Claremont was still there, but you get the impression he was increasingly not being listened to. He was not really driving things as he had been. Prior to that, you like when you know when it became clear that John Byrne wanted to do his own book, they're like, well, John, maybe you'd like to do Fantastic Four, and then Claremont could stay in place. But here it was kind of clear that Claremont's not calling the shots as much. Yeah, it definitely turned into a way more artist-led uh, production than a writer-led production, which I think the writers... Uh, took a lot of prominence through the 70s and the 80s, the Marv Wolfmans, the, the, the Archie Goodwins, and, you know, Jerry Conway's or whatever, Roy Thomas. And, and but yeah, once once Jim Lee kind of entered the scene, and I, maybe Rob Liefeld is to, to blame for this as well, like the all of the image guys, the artwork really, it really, really captured the audience attention in a different way than it had before. Yeah, the artwork really was selling the books at, you know, at kind of up to uh, this point. Um, I don't really think there's any denying that. And then yeah. also keep in mind, too, this is when um, we're a couple years into Tom DeFalco's stint as editor-in-chief. And um, one of his uh, one of his big uh, missions was to uh, you know really really market these books and get as much you know money out of it as he you know as he kind of could. That's why you know the line really explodes now to the point where there's you know so many X Men books. You got four Spider Man books. And... Yeah, well, and you say you milk it for all it's worth, but he kind of had to. I mean, Marvel was going oh, yeah. through some I very. Yeah. I don't disagree. That's... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he was doing everything he could to keep Marvel afloat, and X Men was kind of almost single handedly doing that for the longest time. Yeah, it's just a different tone from the 80s where there was more of like um, a creative uh, sort of uh, focus, like, uh, you know, kind of under like the Jim Shooter years, keeping things uh, limited to, uh, you know, a certain amount of lines and. You know, if you if you are going to release side projects here and there, they made them like kind of like a big uh, special deal. You know, this is just more of like uh, let's get let's get as much you know product out there. Let's try to create a lot of new intellectual properties and throw as much as as you can at the wall and see what sticks. Mm-hmm. The big tonal difference between the '80s and '90s. Okay, so I have a comment from Ryan. He says, This arc may have its naysayers, but these issues are what pushed me headfirst into comics. With the X-Men animated series igniting my interest in X-related comics at the time, this storyline blew me away with its amazing 90s art, Kubert, Capullo, and its use of some of the most popular characters of that legendary cartoon, Cable, Apocalypse, Mr. Sinister, with a giant T-1000-style hole in his head. (laughs) Um, The convoluted family drama saddled by years of continuity did not slow this seven-year-old's passion for these comics. A whole new world had been open to me, and I couldn't wait to explore it for years to come. Yeah, I think a lot of these comments are like, this was a formative 
period in a lot of people's lives, jumping into comics at this particular point. Lars offers a definitely a different perspective coming at it from a, a different age than probably the Be because, rest of us. Because I'm old. You can say that I'm old. It's okay. <laughs> yes. And, and, and if we're looking at the overview here, well, yeah, because like, why does this exist? Well, it exists because they were trying to just sell a buttload of comics. It should be said, of course, with crossovers. There's two ways of doing a crossover, broadly speaking. Yeah. You can have the same creative team do, like, the major spine of the book. You know, like Crisis on Infinite Earths. You know, the main issues are all done by Wolfman and Perez. And then you have other books that join into that. Or option B, which this is, is you have different creative teams basically do different chapters. And I think in a way that doesn't do it any favors. You have the same problem with other crossovers because if you like one creative team, well, they're only going to be around a third of the time or a fourth of the time. And it, that constant shifting of tone doesn't necessarily help. Um, you, ha you have to appreciate the patchwork, but that's harder to do because like, you know, if you like Wolfman and Perez, well, here's more of that. But this, <laughs> yeah. this shifts gears quite a bit. Frankly, I think Inferno has this problem. I think even though you might like, I like, you know, Claremont and Mark Silvestri just fine. But it, the shifting, the tone really becomes hard to keep up with. I'm going to talk about, yeah, definitely the artwork, uh, the different artists a little bit later once we get into the issues. But yeah, you're right. And and even like X Factor at the time was a very comedic book, whereas the other oh, yes. ones were not. And so it's like fitting that aspect into this crossover, uh, you know, trying to joke around while Wolverine's standing there is kind of, it's, it is a little weird. Uh, okay, another comment from Aaron. This is the beginning of the era when I was collecting X-Force Monthly. Nietzsche and Capullo did a great job of batting cleanup for Liefeld, improving on the art, storytelling, and characterization. Executioner's Song is one of my favorite crossovers, and along with Operation Galactic Storm, which I think was like the same time that was that this is going on, um, I feel that it does a great job of telling a compelling, cohesive story across several titles and art story uh, art styles. Even though famously there is an issue of X Factor that barely features its own characters, mm -hmm. that's that's weird. When you have the X Force Epic Collection. It actually doesn't have this this whole story in in full. It only has the X Factor issues with some text recaps, and yeah, so you have one issue there that doesn't even barely it barely has the X Factor character. Honestly, it's though, I honestly though I kind of prefer it that way. I mean, I own you know the X Factor by Peter David Omnibus, and I don't feel any need for those other issues to intrude upon it. You know, I want to be reading X Factor by Peter David, which, True. as you say, is very distinct. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And also the X Factor, like this storyline is the least important to X Factor going forward uh, than, you know, the X-Men or X-Force. It's true. Yeah. Well, and, and infamously, of course, I, mean, I believe I'm right in saying it was ultimately the sort of stuff that led to Peter David leaving the title because he felt that, you know, it, the, the, the intrusion of the crossovers on what he wanted to do with the book, it was just too much. On his second run on X Factor, I believe he reverses course on that. And he says, I realize that participating with the crossovers will bump sales. And as of my book, and as sales always go down over time, not participating in the crossover would, you know, make my sales get soggy. And that's not good either. <laughs> yep. Yep. It's, it's true. It's true. Uh, okay, I we've, we're spending a lot of time on comments because a lot of people had stuff that they wanted to say on here. I just have a few more. I'm going to kind of plow through them here. I have one on 
on Twitter from uh, Shatterstar Poetry Jam says, <laughs> yeah, I know, great, great title. Um, the Jay Lee issues of X Factor are some of my favorite comic book art ever. There you go. Uh, and then Tom says, Executioner's Song came at the height of my comic collecting fever when I was 10, 11 years old. Fridays were new comic day back then, and I remember going after school to the corner store to see if another issue was out. The bags, the trading cards, the pouches. Yeah, we never talked about that. These Each of these issues was individually bagged with a trading card. That's yeah. how much they wanted to pump up this, this crossover. It was nuts. Yes, you're right. <laughs> Which meant that, you know, I couldn't just go to 7-Eleven and flip through it on the stand. Uh, you have to actually buy the issue. They, I believe they still cost the same, though, right? Yeah, From month yeah. To month. So at least there wasn't, like, an increase in price. To... Yeah. I worry that since we're into the I, – I, I say this, so, you know, as a former price guide manager for Wizard Magazine, I yeah. worry that since we're now into the age of the, of the bubble – that the clear and obvious intent was to force people to buy two copies of every one, one to keep Polly bagged and one to open and read. Ridiculous. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. You're absolutely Funny right. you mentioned that. I, I remember back in the day there was like um, there was something in Wizard that said like, uh, you know, kind of to what you were just talking about, how to reseal the Polly bags, like to hold a lighter like two inches away. <laughs> oh! After you cut it with like an X-Acto knife and you could kind of do like the little crimp on like the, the plastic edge. That is a, if, if, if it can be done, that's a brilliant idea. I wonder how many comics got burned. How many houses burned down yeah. because, you know, children were starting trying to poly, re-polybag their executioner's song? Well, I wonder how many people are trying to pull that past the CGC uh, guys now. Well, <laughs> I, 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 sorry, I hate to name drop. I have been, well, I was in the CGC vault ages and ages ago, and yeah, they will not be fooled. <laughs> <laughs> that's so funny. So the trading cards are reprinted in the epic collections you can actually see the ones i don't know if all of them are there but at least the ones that relate to x-force are in this epic collection they're and, all uh, there yeah they're yeah, all there awesome yeah, yeah that's that's very cool um yeah i do have two copies of uncanny x-men number 294 one open and one not open so see see go. yeah i know I it know. worked it did yeah well and that's that's the whole point of variant covers and all that kind of stuff. In 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 the epic <laughs> collections, maybe they should have had the perforated edges around the trading cards so you could you know separate them. But yeah, yeah. Um, okay, two two more comments here. Simon says, after hearing how terrible this event was supposed to be, I feared the worst. But I have to admit, I really enjoyed it. And these early X Force issues are now a guilty pleasure of mine. And I can't wait for the next epic collection to be published. Uh, last comment, the art is fantastic. Lovely to see the, some origins of Greg Capullo here, and JRJR is always a pleasure. He's the one that did the Cable Blood and Metal miniseries. X-Men really got the best up-and-comers at this point art-wise, and as far as the story goes, I enjoyed it a lot. Perhaps it reads better when binged, though. I didn't read X-Men in the 90s, so I don't know how it felt to read these stories monthly. I binge read everything X-Men I could get my hands on a few years ago. I kind of loved it all. Given my experience, I feel like Fabian Nicieza deserves more credit for his X-Work. Awesome. Yeah. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, that's all we have for comments, and we've spent a lot of time with the preamble. I think we should probably get into talking about the issues. We are going to talk about just the first six parts in this episode, because with four of us talking, it's going to take us a long time to get through all of these these issues. So we're going to do the first half in this episode, and then in the next episode, we'll deal with the last half. And since we all sort of represent a different X title, uh, Jared is my X Factor co-host on my X Factor episodes, and James is my co-host for the X Force episodes. And Lars, you're going to do some X Men with me, so I think we're going to each introduce our respective X title, and that means we're going to start with Uncanny X Men uh, number two ninety four. So Lars, can you give us just a you know one or two sentences to give us a recap, and then you can start off start start us off with your thoughts about this issue. Yeah, I mean, this is basically opens up as a slice of life story, um, just kind of checking in where all the different characters are. And it happens that Xavier is going to give a little public talk on, you know, kind of mutant harmony and, and well, you know, diversity and tolerance and inclusivity and acceptance. He's doing it, I believe it's at a Lilla Cheney concert. That is yep. her name, right? Lilla Cheney, yeah. And yep. uh, some of the X-Men are there guarding him, although they're not going to be doing a very good job here. And some of them are like, you know, we're just checking with the characters because like, you know, Colossus and Iceman are off buying groceries. Um, I love it. So it ranges all over the place as to where the characters are. And then quickly the summation would be that, well, Cable, or so it appears, shows up and publicly shoots, tries to assassinate Professor X and quickly escapes. And meanwhile, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, for unknown reasons, capture Cyclops and Jean. And that's it. Yeah. Uh, do you want to give us some your thoughts on this issue? Yeah, I mean, okay, so again, I read this when it was coming out, and I I really enjoy this issue. Um, I think that Brandon Peterson's art, I quite enjoy it. He's also a very lovely man. We had dinner back in my wizard days, and we're both Scandinavian, so that always helps. Um, <laughs> the, the cover image, I think, is just fantastic. Uh, Cable standing there over Xavier's smoldering body. That is just a very powerful and arresting image, and I'm really glad they used it on the cover of the X-Force Epic Collection because it's, it really is, you know, draws your eye. Yep. Cable's head seems to be a little too small. This is always the problem in the era. The heads were always too small, but eh, it was the 90s. So, um, yeah, great cover shot. I could just imagine people, you know, viewing this on the, like when it came out in the day, because Cable was sort of still an unknown. He was pushing the envelope of things that the, the rest of his team were willing to do. And to see him actually taking out Xavier, it's like, whoa, it's not out of the realm of possibility that this is actually kind of real. Well, oh, well, okay, we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> I politely disagree, but we'll get to that, yeah. We'll okay, that. okay, sure. And uh, now, and yeah, the, the slice of life's, I mean, some of them are like, eh, Colossus and Bobby are buying groceries. One of the ones, it's not necessarily handled all that well, but that I do kind of enjoy, is that Gene, being a telepath, catches Cyclops kind of daydreaming a bit salaciously about Psylocke. Yep. And she gets uh, ticked with him that he's daydreaming about Psylocke. And, you know, they've always alluded to the fact of the difficulty about dating a telepath. And uh, this would be one of them. Because it's, 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 it's a very, well, I know we're dealing with mutants. It's a very human moment 
where Gene, you know, is wrestling with the fact they say, why are you daydreaming about Psylocke? Of course, the obvious response to that is no matter how much you're in love with somebody, you're going to daydream about someone else at some point. Um, this is what we as people do. I happen to be married for 20 years. And, you know, it's occasionally you think of someone else. So I thought that was a very nice moment between the two of them. There's an X Factor insert that, you know, tries to be a bit jokey as it were, because X Factor is jokey. I do worry <laughs> that, like, if you didn't know who the horsemen are, there's really no explanation for that here. And also, they're not really working on behalf of Apocalypse, which is also a bit strange. So some explanations here are not forthcoming. I can keep rambling, but what else What else do we need to cover? Jared, do you have any comments? Well, I I do really like sort of the, the mundane beginning to the story. You know, the characters uh, going on dates, uh, Iceman and Colossus going to the grocery store. But one thing that kind of stood out to me uh, was the one page that the X Factor shows up and, you know, it's strong guy, multiple men and Quicksilver on the couch watching the, the concert. They felt sort of out of uh, written out of character <laughs> in in this this instance. But, you know, it's not Peter David writing them. It's uh, Scott Lobdell. So I don't know. What are you going to do? I'd agree with you. I mean, I think because this is Nicieza trying to mimic the fact that X Factor is a comedy book. Or is, oh yeah, I guess. It's uh, Lovedale. Okay, so still, it, it's it's Lovedale trying to mimic the fact that Peter David is writing a comedy book and he has multiple men doing a conga line, which we haven't seen that side of jokey Jamie Madrox yet at all. Um, that's So yeah, I think you're right. I think that it is a little bit out of character. He doesn't quite have a handle on how, how Peter David is doing things. Humor is hard to replicate. A particular person's sense of humor is hard to replicate, and they don't quite yeah. get there here. Yeah. I will say, okay, here's the thing. To cut to the chase, I enjoyed this issue overall. I thought it set things up very nicely, you know, except for the problem with the horsemen. It's like, well, here's the characters. Here's so on. And Xavier's, the assassination attempt on his life clearly sets the a, a little bit of a time bomb going because X-Force is watching the coverage and they're like, oh my God, Cable has just tried to kill Professor X. So all hell is going to break loose. That's where it, it does really well. I think the art does really well. Here's the problem. I humbly submit to you that the decisions made previous to this means that at this point, if you are have been paying attention and you have a good sense of literacy. I was reading this at the time, and I was like, oh my God, I know exactly how this 12-part story is going to go. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Be because the tragic decision to reveal in the Cable two-parter that Strife has Cable's face. We even knew that before that. It was revealed well, yes, yes. in, yeah. in X-Force number 10. But yeah. not to anybody except for what was his name? Weapon Weapon Prime. But but we the reader know. But we the reader know. It here's the yeah. thing. The setup yeah. the setup to this, it was a tragically stupid mistake to reveal that Strife has Cable's face because yeah. the moment that is known, you as the reader go, Well, the obvious explanation here is that it's Strife pretending to be Cable. Yeah. And the story in no way disappoints on that regard. Um, so I, don't, I didn't for a moment believe that Cable had done. Also, what they should have done was they should have, it would have worked if they'd not 
like just had strife noodling around the background, not made him so prominent, not revealed that he has Cable's face, and then like really kind of build up even more so Cable's extremism in X Force and give Cable a plausible reason to have tried to shoot Xavier. We are not given a motive beyond Cable shooting Xavier, other than he's kind of pissy. And the obvious scenario, I was like, oh, well, the next 12 issues is going to be the X community is going to go after X-Force. They're going to punch each other up. Strife is going to interrogate Scott and Jean, and there's going to be the finale, the end. And that was with no foreknowledge. Spoiler so, alert. Holy cow. Well, this, well look. No, 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 no. But, I, no, but I'm, I'm talking to you from the vantage point of somebody oh, sure. who had only yeah. read the first issue. And you, you, yeah, you're, you're, you're like, well, this is the way I would expect it to go. And if they led you to believe option A and giving you option B, awesome. But that's not what happened. And so that's why I found this all a bit underwhelming was because I'm like, I know how this story is going to go. And it wasn't surprising. James, do you have anything you want to say? <laughs> yeah, I actually uh, disagree a little bit. Uh, just first, just wanted to say that like uh, the quiet issue uh, before and after the crossover, that's kind of like a Lobdell uh, trademark. So like all like uh, the romance subplots and like you mentioned, they were going grocery shopping and things like that. He always did like that calm before the storm and calm after the storm. So I kind of like that here. And then um, as far as Cable and Strife uh, having the same face, I actually thought that rewards the reader because to me, it's kind of like the horror movie trope where we know what's going on, but the cast of the movie doesn't know that that killer is behind the corner or, or something like that. But I, so, think, I, I think I prefer fiction. You know, it would be nice to have some element of surprise. It would be nice to have some element of mystery. And if you, if you play it this way, you rob the drama of its mystery. I think too much was known about Strife going into this. I mean, yeah, there's, there's clearly details we don't know. But the broad strokes of it, it's like there's nothing surprising here. Except his motivation. I mean, the literally kind of the only thing we know about Strife is that he looks like Cable. Yes, but the moment you know he looks like Cable, because you presume, oh, he's pr he, either he's a Cable clone or Cable is the Strife clone. I mean, th this is the most obvious explanation. And they don't deviate from that. So why does he have an interest in Scott and Jean? Well, he's a Cable clone, you know. Or he's from an alternate timeline. Well, may well, well, maybe, possibly. But either, either way, when we've already figured out that Cable is Scott and Madeline Pryor's son grown up, then again, there's not really anything surprising there. I do apologize. I, I didn't mean to bring things stone dead. It's just, again, this, this is what was going through my mind, only having read issue one, which I enjoyed, but that's, that's what I was experiencing at the time. I'm like, oh, well, I know what the story is now. Okay. Well, going, going from there... I guess we can uh, we can just say well now that we know how the story is going to turn out is it still enjoyable as we go along is it is there is, is there still enough happening with the characters and the character development the soap opera drama to to still keep us invested in the story and that's and that's a perfectly yeah. fair question to ask yeah yeah uh, okay a couple of things that I really like I really like the page where uh, Xavier gets shot because the background is completely red. And it's full bleed red as well, which is uncommon for this era. So it it really, really highlights this pivotal moment um, in the story. I think it's it's quite well done, and uh, and yeah, it, it just stands out to me as a as a highlight. Um, I I, uh, I think Brendan Peterson. I like how his art eventually turns out. I find that here he has a lot of odd proportions 
like you said, the heads get really, really small in this era, and I think Brendan Peterson falls into that trap a lot. Um, it's kind of some stiff, awkward poses. The interesting thing about the artwork in this collection is that the three people here, Brendan Peterson, Andy Kubert, and Greg Capullo, are all sort of in the same Jim Lee school of comic art. And so the only person who really sticks out is Jay Lee, who has a very, very different tone. Uh, so I think it all works well together. Like you were talking earlier, Lars, about the, sh the tonal shifts between issues. And I think that for the most part, it actually is fine, except for the Jay Lee issues, which I'm not knocking yeah. him as an artist. He's fantastic, but um, they do stick out quite a bit. Well, no, and I and I would concur with your um, listener who was you know, praising Jay Lee's art here no i think jay lee's art on x factor is like really good but because it's like th three parts of a 12 parter and it stands out above what's around it that becomes a bit of a problem because you start and go i'd like to see more jay lee please and you can't i also like the moment at the end where the x-force team get, turns on the tv to see the news report about what their leader has done uh, and here's where we don't know what's going to happen it's like we know so so you know the big secret about about strife and cable or whatever but you don't know how people are going to react to it you don't know how the the, the writers are going to present that kind of information. So like, what is X-Force going to do about the fact that their boss killed Xavier? Okay, let's move on to X-Factor number 84. Why don't you take this away, Jared? Sure, X-Factor 84, titled Tough Love. This issue starts out with uh, Professor X in the hospital. Yeah, and the X-Factor team is there and the X-Men. They send Wolfbane and Strong Guy out to do reconnaissance at the, the place where Professor was shot. And meanwhile, the X-Force team show up and they have a big old fight. But X-Force escapes at the end. And do you want to give us your overall impressions of this issue? Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I enjoyed this issue. I, I think this... Uh, out of the whole crossover, this felt like the most X Factor issue, and also while well, the cover is uh, the last uh, Larry Stroman cover that, oh. that he did, yeah. But anyway, the the art by by Jay Lee, I think, is very very striking, very you know very different than than the rest. But it, it looks very cool. I, I do enjoy the the little fight that Wolvesbane has with Farrell, who I, I've always thought is the cheap knockoff of, of Wolfsbane, <laughs> Wolfsbane, <laughs> of Rain. So anyways, but yeah, it's, it's I think it's a good, solid issue, you know, the next part of the story. Okay. Lars, do you have anything you want to say? Well, I think the Peter David J. Lee um, issues are the strongest issues in this entire story. Now, there is a big shift in tone. And we were talking about this, that, you know, some of the artists, like, there's not, you could argue there's not a million miles in style between Brandon Peterson and Andy Kubert. But there sure as hell is a million miles in style between the others and J. Lee, um, which is fine for me because I really like J. Lee. But if you if you if you prefer Andy Kubert, then you might not take to this. Jay is so stylized, and his his work. It, I mean, the thing is, it doesn't always make sense. It gets a bit illogical, but that's okay because art isn't supposed to always make sense. That's why it's art. There's a scene where 
Havoc has, for no reason that I can figure out, dropped into a crotch shot. He seems to be morphing out of proportion, for reasons I don't know why. And he's like twice as big as Polaris, who's like sitting down for some baffling reason. It makes <laughs> no sense, but it's it's pretty great. It's pretty awesome in its own way. So, yeah, I, I really, really like what he does here. Yeah, just one note on on the the artwork. I really love that Jay Lee really leans into playing with blacks, like his spot blacks on every page are just incredible. Uh, this is the age of cross hatching. When you look at all of these other artists that are in this book, uh, along with like even Rob Liefeld and uh, and everybody, they they love the cross hatching. But Jay Lee doesn't really embrace that at all. He favors his solid blacks. And the colorist really plays off of this, too. The colorist in this one is Brad Vancata. And if you look at any, any page, especially the ones in, uh, during the fight scenes where they're, where they're in the moonlight, Brad is choosing to use a lot of solid white shading, solid white, to, as a counterpoint to all of Jay Lee's solid blacks. And it looks really, really cool. I think it's quite striking. And, uh, and he even like chooses very bright, bold colors for his backgrounds. If you look at on page 141, there's a there's a vertical panel on the left where Cannonball is saying, Feral, let her pass. Uh, the background there, there's no backgrounds. It's just a solid kind of a dark green color, and it stands out. And it's, you won't see that green in any of the other chapters. None of the other colorists will use that as a background. It's it's quite striking, and it goes along with Jay Lee's striking, striking style, his own striking style. Well, and in a botched version of this uh, take, uh, Curtis, you were talking about how, you know, Jay's use of well, either Jay or the colors. I presume I kind of this has to be Jay use yeah. of lighting. There's a group shot that looks really great, and only Wolverine's face is blacked out. You can you, you only see his teeth and his eyes. Everyone else is floodlit. They look like they're fighting the Battle of Helm's Deep or something. But Wolverine, Wolverine looks like he's dunked his face into a bucket of black ink. It makes no sense, but it's awesome. It's <laughs> yeah, really it, awesome. It does. I kind of want to. I kind of want to get the original and own that page. It's just great. You know what I think happened is I think Jay Lee probably drew a really amazing face on Wolverine, and then uh, the inker Al Milgram accidentally ruined it. He's like, oh, shoot, what am I going to do? I'll just fill it on all black. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, that looks really cool. That works. Yeah. Speaking, of things, speaking of art that's illogical, I'm just looking at here. How can Rogue have that much hair? That's an incredible amount of hair. It looks like it looks like she's She's actually. She doesn't have hair. She has a bear pelt thrown over. Her. <laughs> yeah. This is definitely yeah, it's, part it's of like Jay Lee's style. <laughs> yes. yes. Her hair has become a cape. It's really. That's really strange. But no, great shot. Great shot. It's awesome. Um, I also really love Peter David's sense of humor. X Factor at this time is a is a comedy book, and all of his characters have a really great sense of humor, a unique sense of humor. Each one of them. Uh, in this issue. I feel like he really dials back the comedy, probably because none of the other books that are in this crossover are nearly as funny. So he's trying to keep it in check a little bit. One great moment, though, in this shot with the really with the blacked out uh, Wolverine face, Beast says, "Because your hypothesis would seem to have merit. If we nail X Force, then we get Cable." And the next panel, small panel, is really great with, with with strong guy singing. Oh, good, including HBO and maybe the Disney Channel for Rain. 
and the best part is the is the post punchline banter from from Havoc saying, "Quiet, you're embarrassing me." <laughs> like it's so perfect with all the different font sizes and the layouts. It's like you can read that exactly the way probably that Peter David ha- is meaning for you to read it, and it's really fantastic. Well, you know, th- this is the thing. I, I Peter, in some regards, is just a stronger caliber of writer than the ones around him here, purely because I mean, the others can do good work. The others can do something you know meaningful or dramatic or they can you know try to see it in a joke but peter can do something meaningful dramatic funny and telling you something about the characters all in the same scene he can do it simultaneously there's an opening scene where when xavier shows up at the hospital and everyone comes running in strong guy has showed up with his date in tow and it's just really funny that like strong guy always seems to be going on a date with somebody and Val goes, well, we tried to call you, but your, you know, your phone was off. Why was your phone off? And his date goes, because I didn't want to be interrupted, you know. And then she goes, she, she goes, a strong guy, did I cupcake? Um, and Peter's decided that Havoc is the straight guy because Havoc goes, Guido, go do this because I ordered you to cupcake. Um, it's, 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 it's just, yeah, it's, again, Peter can do so much in the same scene. Yeah. And I think the others have to stick to the plot sometimes. James, why don't you share your thoughts? Yeah, just to add uh, something to that. I mean, Guido, a.k.a. Strongway, he was like one of my favorite characters at this time. He's just like every time he's on on panel, like he's always doing something funny or, you know, just adding some lightheartedness to the story. Yeah. It actually um, – I know, uh, like later on, interviews with uh, Peter David, um, who wrote this. You know, he states that he didn't really want to be involved with this crossover. Um, you can kind of tell, like he's got some other subplots going on in the background that probably don't really make sense if you're only reading this crossover. But it does actually make sense that X Factor, the government team, would go after X Force because uh, Professor X, he's still kind of a bigwig in uh, the federal government. He's got a lot of friends there. So, you know, if, he, if there's an assassination attempt on him, you know, they would probably send X-Factor to uh, to go figure out what's going on there. So that part actually does make sense. And I also like that uh, we have so many teams uh, bouncing around. There's a lot of characters in this crossover. Yeah. But there's also a lot of attempts to not let people just get lost in the shuffle. And I know that, you know, it's very hard when you got 30 or 40 uh, characters you're juggling around. But you know, especially here, they play on the fact that Rain, Wolfsbane, um, she's basically brothers and sisters with all of these uh, X-Force members that she has to fight now because, you know, they basically grew up together uh, when they were all in the New Mutants. So there's uh, there's some tension there, which uh, which I do appreciate. Um, you don't always see that in crossovers that have to, you know, juggle this many characters around. And uh, yeah, I like uh, there's also a twist here that uh, Mr. Sinister is posing as Apocalypse. So that kind of uh, it, it makes it feel big. Like there's a there's a lot of villains on the on the skirts of this crossover. And you see how uh, Scott and Jean are delivered to Sinister in the end here, with these canisters over their heads. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, like oh poor for them, it's just to prevent them from, both from using their powers, I assume, or something. But in the end, we also find out that the uh, that Professor X is infected now with the techno organic virus. That has ties to Apocalypse, so something's happening here. Something big is brewing. But that kind of takes us into the next issue, Executioner's Song Part 3. This is X-Men number 14. Uh, This one's called Fingers on the Trigger, and this is the debut uh, of Andy Kubert as X-Penciler. So that's kind of cool. 
with uh, Mark Pennington as his inker, Xavier's brought back to the mansion where Beast can start to do some some uh, experiments and help him out, try to keep the techno-organic virus under control. Uh, Bishop is a self-appointed bodyguard. <laughs> I love his attitude. He's such a <laughs> an over-the-top <laughs> character at this point. Um, but all of the X-Men are and the X-Factor are at the X-Mansion right now, and they have to decide what their plan of action is. So they kind of split up. A bunch of them go off to look for X-Factor because they get a bead on where he's going to be. And meanwhile, Sinister uh, makes an exchange. The... Uh, the bodies of Jean Grey and uh, and Cyclops for some sort of genetic matrix that we don't know anything about quite yet. Uh, but he's delivering them to Strife because you see Zero is the one who comes through the portal with that. So that means Strife is behind them. Uh, and then we also get the cameo appearance from this other group of villains called the Dark Riders who uh, revive Apocalypse to let them know that someone's doing stuff in your name, buddy. It's not cool. And also, Cable <laughs> comes back from the future. He was in the future at the end of the Cable two-part miniseries, and he's come back to find out that he is being accused of killing the Professor. Holy cow, so much is going on here. Um, it's just amazing. This this issue is basically to set up multiple plot lines. Not a whole lot happens in terms of fights or whatever, but uh, it's all to lay groundwork for what's coming up. And something that I find really interesting here is we have three major villains that are coming into play. Uh, we have Apocalypse, we have Sinister, and we have Strife. And each of them has their own group of mutant henchmen. I already mentioned the Dark Raiders. Dark Raiders or Dark Riders? What is it? Uh, Riders. Riders. Riders, yeah. The Dark Riders. And uh, somebody here, you can tell me who is is Mr. Sinister's team of mutants? (laughs) The Nasty Boys. That's right. And who who does Strife (laughs) pal around with? That's the MLF. Yes, the Mutant Liberation Front. There you go. You all win prizes. And then, (laughs) Lars, you didn't answer one, so I'm going to throw one at you. Who's Magneto's group of lackeys at this time? Um, let's see. At this time, is it the Acolytes? That's right. <laughs> you okay. all win prizes. <laughs> so, like you were saying, James, there are so many characters already. We have X Factor, X Force, and X Men, and now we have three villains, all with their own team of mutants as well. This is like sixty characters in this one storyline that we're trying to deal with. Holy cow! Wow, it's just un- unreal, but keeps moving along. And I'm going to make one last comment before I pass it on to somebody else. I love the Jubilee scene with Jubilee and Bishop to show uh, to show off their personalities. But also, Jubilee is still a new character at this point, but already she is a more mature X-Man than Bishop is, who is a brand new <laughs> character. And I love that, that like her growth already has, has uh, you know, come in leaps and bounds. And she's underused in this whole storyline. I don't think she actually gets to join any fights or use her powers at all. Well, Bishop at this stage is just a character who, you know, says what he means and means what he says. Yeah. I mean, if if a line can be shouted, he will shout it. <laughs> um, he, he is so intent on shouting that when he's vowing to protect Xavier from anyone who else might try to murder him, he kind of shouts it and whips out his gun. And you go, wait a minute, are you waving your gun in your... Well, but also, like, he must be waving it in his teammates' faces. And do the X-Men get tired of Bishop always declaring things and waving a loaded gun in their face? 
I, I bet they feel the same way with Wolverine always busting out his claws the same way. <laughs> that's uh, that's the melodrama of the mutant books. I mean, yep, that's, that's right. Go- you remember, I mean, that goes back to the 80s, too, when Rachel would, you know, throw pots and pans across the room over, like, the slightest uh, discomfort. <laughs> <laughs> yes. They always have to, you know, show somebody doing something, even if it's just, like, it's supposed to be a talking scene. Or... Yeah, that's true. Well, James, why don't you carry on with uh, your thoughts about this issue? Yeah, uh, Curtis, we were talking in that Cable miniseries about how I kind of liked uh, Nicieza, who wrote this issue as well, as like a world builder. Yeah. Um, he really tries to flush out the Marvel Universe, and uh, he does that a little bit here, too, um, because Quicksilver, who's uh, with the X-Factor team at this point, he can get the X-Men team's easy access to the moon uh, because he's connected to the Inhumans who have a base on the moon. So uh, when they go on their little mission there, um, you know, Quicksilver has an end. So I kind of I, I, I like that, like the fact that, uh, you know, all these characters have different things that they can offer. And yeah, as you mentioned, there is there is a ton, a ton of groups running around right now. I do like the, the little attempts to give them, uh, you know, personalities with, you know, the limited space that you have with, you know, 500 characters in a 12 part. <laughs> and uh, I just wanted to add, um, as far as Bishop, I know you said uh, Jubilee had only been around for a short time, but Bishop, Bishop, I don't even think had been around for a year yet or like, or oh, maybe yeah. he just had been around for like 12 months. Now, this is um, this is a very important X-Force story. It's an important uh, Cyclops and Cable and Strife story. This is a very important story for Bishop as well because he fails in his mission. Remember, his his mission was to come back and prevent the X-Men traitor, you know, and he he, he feels that, you know, he failed in protecting uh, Professor Xavier here. So, you know, it's it, it's him and, you know, Cable. They still think that Cable did it. So there's a lot of uh, character development for him. And, uh, you know, that scene where Jubilee, you know, is kind of Jubilee is just trying to calm everybody down, sort of be like, uh, you know, like the normal, like a uh, perspective character during all of this. She goes to offer him coffee and, you know, he completely flips out. And then he kind of realizes, like, well, I'm kind of being a jerk. Uh, that Thanks, Jubilee. That, that, that's good, uh, you know, as he takes <laughs> a sip of coffee or whatever. So, like, you really do see um, uh, more, more attempts uh, to kind of flesh out his character and give him, you know, more uh, relationships, like, with his teammates. And, and yeah, I, I, I like this as a Bishop uh, character arc as well. Totally, yeah. And it makes his... his uh his outbursts make more sense and the fact that he wants to be the guy that's standing guard at the mansion. Right, right. Why is Jubilee giving a man this overexcited more coffee? Um, (laughs) It could be decaf, you never know. It could be decaf. I think it's all her fault. Bishop's character smooths out a lot later on. Later he becomes the reliable detective, like in Grant Morrison's run, when there's a murder mystery afoot, yeah. they call in Bishop because they figure Bishop will be one of the best ones to solve it. Well, because yeah, he's a police yeah. officer in his other timeline, right? Yes. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah he's like a paramilitary sort of, like not really like law enforcement, like we'd think of it, like, you know, what he becomes eventually, like in the Grant Morrison issues. But yeah, he's kind of like a... Xavier Security Enforcers, or whatever is, it was the name of the team. Right. Oh, yeah, the XSE. That's yeah. right. <laughs> the XSE. Yeah. <laughs> Jared, what do you have to say about this issue? Well, uh, you know, continuing on with, with Bishop, you know, I, I think he's an interesting character, even though he's sort of like a rehash of Cable <laughs> in a way, you know, from the future, and he has a bunch of guns and, and, <laughs> and kills people. <laughs> And the rest of the team's like, hey, don't do that. Yeah. <laughs> but I just have to echo, I think the, that scene with Jubilee and, and Bishop is the best scene in this issue. Well, let's move on to X-Force number 16, part four of Executioner's Song. Take it away, James. 
Okay. Uh, so this is pretty much a fight scene. Uh, so we have uh, Sam, a.k.a. Cannonball. He's kind of the de facto leader of X-Force. If you've if you read any of the X Force issues leading up to this, and I know we kind of mentioned it before, Cable is not with the team right now. He is stuck in the future. So Sam, I believe he's the oldest of the New Mutants X Force team. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but that kind of makes him like uh, the default leader, which um, sort of goes with his character because he was sort of the default leader of the New Mutants as well. And uh, this is kind of like uh, like a coming out story for uh, for Cannonball. So. His X-Force is fighting the uh, combined X-Factor and X-Men teams. And uh, X-Force uh, tries to escape because they're they're overpowered. Like, they, they can't yeah. possibly, you know, fight, fight these guys. And they're eventually captured. But um, it does show that, uh, you know, Sam has uh, some cojones, you know, standing up to Havoc, who... Uh, Havoc is far more powerful than uh, than Cannonball, so it shows that uh, you know Sam is uh, he's he's growing up, he's taking a stand, and uh, I like the hierarchy of power structures here because you know like I was saying before, X Force they're a lot younger, they shouldn't really be able to give the combined X Men X Factor teams much of a fight, and they don't. So you know that that actually that that kind of makes sense. And then we also go to uh, Storm has like a, a team of, uh, of X-Men and she's going after the four horsemen of Apocalypse. And I thought this was cool because while she's looking for more information, she finds a hologram of Mr. Sinister. And uh, this kind of reminded me of like a video game where it's like your princess is in another castle. It's like they're looking for Apocalypse. <laughs> yeah. like, wait a minute, Mr. Sinister is involved in this too. Yeah. So, you know, this is like uh, when you beat level four or whatever and you think it's like you, you beat the end boss and then it turns out it was somebody else. So, that's right. <laughs> so that's kind of cool. And uh, Strife, you know, he captured uh, Scott and Gene. He's, he's got them as captive. And uh, Cable, he's got a base in Switzerland. He's preparing for the coming fight. And then, uh, yeah, so that's pretty much it as far as the plot. And then I just wanted to point out, um, just to add to that, this is a, a Greg Capullo issue. Um, he draws all the X-Force issues. He started drawing X-Force a couple issues before this. And uh, I just wanted to say I think he's very good with choreography. Because uh, if you look at like a lot of modern crossovers where they're trying to juggle 30 or 40 characters around, you see a lot of splash pages. You see a lot of, um, you know, just kind of big pinup uh, fights. There's a lot of um, specific characters doing specific things here. And uh, I, I appreciate that a lot. I like when they when they get into detail like that instead of just, you know, kind of doing everything as one gigantic battle where all the characters just kind of blend together. So prop, props to Greg Capullo. Mm, yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jared, do you have any comments? A couple things. You know, I, I love how Mr. Sinister gets shot in the face. Bishop shoots him in the face and there's just a big hole in his head. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> like you know, like T one thousand, and then seeing Cable at his hideout, you know, arming up, and there's that one panel of him that is he's just so ridiculously covered in guns and and ammo <laughs> and, and everything. It, it's like you know, sort of making fun of the idea of Cable, just yeah. taking it yeah. to the the absolute extreme. So. I but. I have to con- well okay yeah you're right that he's now put on so many guns because I don't think Cable has super strength I mean he can't throw train cars at people <laughs> how the hell <laughs> he is hauling around all those guns and isn't falling on his face I mean it's well, Professor yeah. Vic Chalker time from X Factor once again he should just, he should just yeah. go down immediately I will say though. I- 
it is on if we're being honest it's a little hard to tell if that is intended as a joke or not it might be (laughs) because you know it it, it could be it could be that greg is like haha i'm going to take this just to crazy extremes or is he just taking it to crazy extremes i honestly don't know I took your position there, Lars. That I, I do think like he's kind of taking the piss with that drawing, because like if you look at all of other Capullo's stuff, like yeah, he's a '90s artist here, but you can tell he has a sense of layout, he has a sense of you know weight and you know foreshortening and things like that. So I think he's yeah. kind of just he's kind of just running with the joke and just you know making it look as ridiculous as possible. Yeah, I think we have to also remember that he is the artist that followed Rob Liefeld, who established yeah. <laughs> this in the first place. And so, you know, and that was a million dollar selling comic book or whatever. Fans wanted that. And so Greg's delivering exactly that here. I remember, too. I know, Lars, you said you um, you did work for Wizard. I remember reading uh, Wizard in the 90s. And, like, um, I, I remember whenever there was, like, a something that they were talking about, you know, the, the excesses of the nineties, like that cable picture there was like always, you know, it was always included. <laughs> I mean, good Lord. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and I mean, of course, you know, Greg, uh, cause here, I mean, this is sure. I mean, this is, this is good for what it is. Capullo of course becomes a really great artist down the road. And it's interesting to see him here in his infancy, because this is not the same artist who is later drawing Batman. Right. Um, yeah. yeah. But, um, yeah, he's going to... The other thing is, I would also like to just add that, yes, I think I would agree with the sentiment that it's good that they play this honestly in that X-Force is going to lose, because they are outnumbered, and they're up against some of the most senior and powerful members of the X community, of course they're not going to win. If they did pull out a victory, I mean, you'd have to play that really carefully to not make the X characters look like complete fools. Yeah. Um, but they but they don't do that, so that's fine. Yeah. And I think that's something that kind of gets lost. Like when I was talking before about modern comics, how these giant crossovers are always just, they're almost like poster books now where everybody's going toe-to-toe with everybody. And um, there does need to be a hierarchy there. There does need to be like a like a sense of the power scale. Like certain characters just simply shouldn't be able to go up against certain characters. And uh, I kind of miss when the Marvel Universe, you know, they, they remembered to, to, do, to show that. Well, there's the one scene at the end here where Cannonball, Feral, Sunspot, and Siren are all running away and the and because one person is after them it's wolverine and wolverine kind of takes out all well, wolverine's of them. 40 people <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> it's like so it's portrayed very yeah. very well here like that's Absolutely. that's accurate <laughs> yeah one other thing i want to point out is um right before that scene with wolverine scott and gene meet strife for the first time and this is an important encounter because of who strife is or who we're going to find out more about strife later Uh, but this is the marvel method at work i think here because i'm pretty sure they're still doing the marvel method at this point where the writer would give an overview and then the penciler would kind of lay out the issue and then the writer would go back and script all of the dialogue into into the action but right at the beginning here uh, and on this page, right above Strife's head, we have a panel with Scott and Gene. And Scott says, where are we? And Gene says, how did we get in uniform? I'm pretty sure <laughs> that uh, Greg Capullo didn't realize that they weren't in uniform when they were captured, when he was drawing this 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 thing. And so when Niciesa goes to script this issue, he's like, oh, I better put in some dialogue to <laughs> so that we have a reason why they're all of a sudden in costume." <laughs> I mean, it's not an explanation. It's just an acknowledgement that there was a mistake made in the artwork, I think. Yeah. yeah. Well, weren't they in 
in uniform in the the previous issue. I know they weren't when they got captured, but in the oh yeah, I guess so with Jay Lee with yeah uh, yeah yeah in Jay Lee both Jay the Lee. the X Factor and X Men one. Yeah. Okay, so somebody made a mistake along the way. That happens so many times in these large crossovers, though, where you got got so many cooks in the kitchen and and certain artists are, you know, one guy's at page 16 while the other guy's still trying to work on page two and stuff just gets, (laughs) it's, I mean, I I get it. It's it's, it's hard to to get everybody on the same page when there's so many moving parts. Yep. It's just fun to point them out afterwards as well. (laughs) Yeah. Great. Well, if we have no more comments about this one, let's keep on going over to Executioner's Song Part 5, Uncanny X-Men 295. This is yours, Lars. Yeah, basically at this point, um, a side team of X-Men with Colossus, Storm, Beast, Quicksilver, Angel, Iceman, engage Apocalypse. And much of this issue is just a big fight scene. And that, Well, first, X-Force is thrown in the Hoosgau, as it were. They're just in prison and by the X-Men. And Colossus's team goes after Apocalypse, and Apocalypse mops the floor with them, basically. Which, you know, is perhaps as it should be, because Apocalypse is pretty powerful. I do really like the cover. It's a bit of a sparse background, and yet somehow that arrangement, that fluid arrangement really works for me. And the power of the characters really comes across. There's a couple things about this that don't work. There is, unfortunately... A really cringeworthy scene where Apocalypse, having defeated all the X-Men and or, that, that are sent after him and knocked the stuffing out of them, goes, well, maybe I should kill them. But to kill them while they're unconscious <laughs> it just seems unseemly. And, okay, that is a bit of bad writing no matter what. because And it, it had kind of become a thing in, like, bad movies and TV. It's like... I've defeated the heroes, but I can't kill them because it wouldn't be crickets. But it's doubly bad coming from Apocalypse because his whole shtick is survival of the fittest. He, by his nature, should have no problem just snapping their necks while they're unconscious. But we can't have six dead X-Men because that would be a problem. This moves along. It, it ends on the point of uh, Wolverine and Bishop catch up with Cable. That's going to lead into the next issue. There's obviously a nice, you know, fight or discussion brewing there. I will say that by this point, I think the Scott and Gene scenes are starting to get a little tedious because there's just strife is just kind of going ooga booga booga at them. And it's not really clear why. And at a certain point, you have to give some context what's going on. I'm like, okay, he's going ooga booga booga. But yeah, this keeps the action moving and it ends on a really nice cliffhanger. I think you nailed the point there that um, the each issue, because you know, if someone only has a, a subscription to Uncanny X Men, everybody has to put the each subplot into every issue, and so yeah, we're they're not ready to fully deal with that that subplot at the, this time of the story, but we still have to have it in here so that people who are only reading Uncanny X Men still get a little glimpse of of the of that storyline. I really like Brendan Peterson a little bit later in his career, but at this point, I think he's probably the weakest artist out of, out of all of them who are in this uh, collection here in this, in this storyline. I think that he just, uh, he doesn't quite have the same flair as some of the others and his sense of storytelling is just not quite as refined. And you look at some of the pages like, let's say, on page 210, when Apocalypse defeats Beast, 
he doesn't it doesn't even really make sense what he's doing to beast it's just maybe an energy blast or something but if it it shows beast flying backwards and then the panel below shows him flying backwards into storm and then the panel below shows him flying into storm into a window i i really think that the flow of action could have been a little arranged a little bit differently so that we could have like all of that happening maybe in one panel or two panels we didn't need that third panel or or some i don't know there's something off about just the the flow of action there uh, that i think the other artists would have handled it a little bit better yeah and also in that that third panel you've got quicksilver there just staring at beast and storm flying out the window and you just think like he's yeah like fast where's, your, yeah. Him. <laughs> where's your super <laughs> speed buddy yeah yeah but he's he's just i don't know just standing there so it, it yeah I, I totally get what you're saying it is a little awkward yeah i was gonna say like um pretty much all the artists on this crossover at the very very early stages of their career at this point i know yeah. uh capolo capolo had quasar under his belt before this cubert did ghost rider uh, Jay Lee, he did Namor. Uh, what did Brandon Peterson do before this? I'm tr- struggling to think of any examples. Yeah, well, it could be that he's pretty new, but that would be quite something to, to yeah. because and he I, was the launch artist for Uncanny at this reboot, right? Or uh, no, that was uh, Will's, Will's Protasio. Oh, but then, that's you know, right, of course. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah. And the whole image thing happens, yeah, and then yeah. he's kind of brought in as a cleanup hitter. That's whatever, right. But. I, I do agree, that. though. He gets uh, he gets better later, but he's probably I, – I agree. I think he's the weakest artist out of these four. But yeah, he's he just gets, starting out, like yeah. you say. He's learning a lot, yeah. and he Absolutely. does get – by the time Heroes Reborn hits and he is involved in that, like I love his stuff at that point. I think he's really great. Okay, James, do you have any comments about this issue? Yeah, just quick. I was just going to say, um, I, I do like the idea that Apocalypse is weak here. Like, So he was like in some kind of hibernation or something. So that definitely cast Odin doubt sleep. on yeah, <laughs> his own version of the, the Odin sleep. So that cast <laughs> doubt on exactly how involved he is in this. You know, he's he's been sleeping since, uh, I'm trying to think of the last time we saw Apocalypse. I think maybe the, the X Factor storyline or it, where they sent Nathan to the moon. Right. The story called Endgame in X yeah. Factor uh, 65 to 68 or something like that. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he's been out of circulation for a couple of years. So I, I, I do like that they did that. Jubilee gets some more good moments here. Like I, I like that they give her like a little feud with uh, the, the uh, quote unquote kids in X-Force. She's like, hey, I, I've got the trademark on being the kid X-Men. Like, <laughs> not you guys. So yeah. I, I did like that. And then um, they let Cannonball out of prison uh, on this arc because, you know, he's got the most ties to Cable. He's got some intel that the other teams won't have. So they kind of they kind of cut a deal with him there. And uh, that's that's definitely adding to his arc of becoming, you know, like a stronger character and a stronger leader who's not uh, not a kid anymore. Jared, do you have anything to say about this yeah, issue? Yeah. Um, one page that I, I felt is really interesting is um, where Psylocke is standing over Professor X and like in her mind, she's sort of thinking like the impression I get is that she's going about to kill him to put him out of his misery, but then gets interrupted by Moira to tell him everybody to go elsewhere. And I, I just thought it's that's kind of kind of interesting. <laughs> But, um, you know, she did a body swap and strange things. Every character goes through strange things, but. (laughs) So we'll discuss this more in the next uncanny issue um, that I'll be, that we'll be talking about. But I, 
There's a scene here that inadvertently doubly exposes, and I, we can argue this out later, that I think Strife is a terrible villain. I think Strife is one of the worst <laughs> X-Men villains. And everyone says, well, at least he has cool armor. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He looks like a total buffoon. And there's a scene here where Val is briefing the others, and they've got like a diagram of Strife up on the board. And, or the, the monitor screen, and it just exposes the degree to which this guy is clad in silver. He looks like a stripper pole w- with with a radiometer on the top of his head. I mean, those what are those fins even for? They can only be <laughs> a radiometer to make it spin around, you know, if light's there, and with a cape thrown on. He looks like a complete fool. Um, and somehow, when they're having this briefing, how the X-Men are not curled over in laughter just pissing themselves i don't know it's a remarkable feat they are they are they are they are true professionals in that same scene strong guy holds up a glove that uh oh, yeah. that <laughs> there is this one there's this yeah one scene in uh a past x factor issue where strife is is going through a portal the the zero portal and the mutant liberation front is pulling him by his feet from one side and x factor is pulling him from his arms from the other side this tug of war through the portal and then they make off with strife's glove in the end it's like <laughs> pretty funny but it's like i always wonder to what degree do the other writers pay attention to what is happening in the other books because that was just a, a small throwaway scene in x factor 77 but uh, scott labdell picked up on it and decided to write it into the story here Yes, or you worry they were maybe planning that there could be something bigger that, oh, well, we've got his glove. So now <laughs> we've, got this, we've got this gadget in the glove that will let us do this. I mean, I don't know. Um, or yeah. it's a bit much. I, mean, I mean, Jubilee even makes fun of the guy. She's like, well, for all we know, that Strife could be Cable walking around with an ice bucket on his head. I love it's it. Like, That's so great. It's, it's true. He does look like an ice bucket. I, I find it impossible to take this guy seriously. I just, I really do. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He he is not one of the the greatest of X villains, that's for sure. Right. I want to see him in a there movie. Are, yeah. yeah, there are two other more interesting X Men villains in this storyline too. But Strife is the personification of all of the elements of '90s mutant comic melodrama rolled into one character. Yes. In what regard? Really Please elaborate. In what regard? I was just going to say the way he talks, like, like everything's like Shakespeare, uh, the way he looks, um, the fact that there's so much mystery around him. Uh, we kind of know what his powers are, but then we kind of don't because he kind of just does whatever the plot requires him to do. So that's like, that's 90s, <laughs> 90s X-Men. Man. Yeah, it, it's bad. It's just bad, but that's just me. I like them though. I'll, I'm not, I'm not afraid to. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Um, okay. So before we move on, I want you to look at the cover to X-Factor number 85. And there is a little star down at the bottom that says Beyond Video, the new Dragon Quest game. And it's actually on the cover of like almost all of the issues in this storyline. Do you remember? I remember when I seeing do. this, it's um, Dragon Quest was trying to be a Dungeons and Dragons type game. And uh, it just had a different game mechanic. And it actually did really well. But the advertising in this in these issues was so over the top. Um, it had both inside covers, it had the back cover, and it had a six-page insert in the middle 
just about yeah. Dragon Quest. It was, I think there was a total of 10 pages of Dragon Quest advertising in <laughs> each one of these issues uh, with no other advertising. I can't imagine how much Dragon Quest was paying to get their <laughs> advertising in these issues. <laughs> it's unreal. Yeah, it was like uh, they printed it on like magazine paper too, you know, yeah. where like uh, the comics were still on like the, the sort of pulp paper at this point. And um, yeah, I, I remember I actually had a friend that had that, but we were only like 10 years old, I think, at the time, and we were too stupid to figure out the rules. <laughs> we put in like the VHS tape and then we watched it for like a half hour, thought it was cool, and then like we went outside to play like a half hour later. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Okay, Jared, why don't you take us through X-Factor 85? All right. X-Factor 85 called uh, Schnicks and Bones, <laughs> or however you say that. Yeah. Well, this is the big confrontation uh, between Cable, Bishop, and Wolverine. They meet at the, the end of the last issue, but they have a bit of a fight in this one. But then it's revealed that Cable manages to convince them that or convince Wolverine that uh, he was not the one to shoot Professor X and Wolverine uh, agrees because he didn't smell right or, you know, didn't smell the same as what as strife. And then meanwhile, the the rest of the X-Men go to track down and put an end to the mutant liberation front and big battle there best part of that i think is when uh archangel accidentally cuts a dude's head off (laughs) (laughs) you're right (laughs) anyways nothing is really resolved here the the fight with the mutant liberation front continues to the next issue um but again this is jay lee and it's amazing artwork (laughs) so and i think strife looks much better here than in the the previous issue (laughs) Still ridiculous, but I, I think Jay Lee draws him better <laughs> than Brandon Peterson. Well, I, yeah, I, I think I think Jay Lee draws him better by showing less of him. That's um, true. Yeah. All, all we see is his head, which is okay, good. <laughs> you can narrow it down to the head. Right. Right. Yeah. Lars, do you have any comments about this issue? Uh, well, uh, yeah, it, it, this is a really great issue. I think Jay Lee's art is always interesting to look at. It's really fascinating, even if I can't automatically follow it. So Bishop and Cable have not met before now, have they? I don't think. No, I don't think so. No. Right. Now, as you, as you say, they are kind of in the same mold. So it is a bit interesting to have these three characters throw down and, and see how they can settle their differences. There's an, um, an amazing splash page. Well, I think it's meant to be where Bishop tries to blast Cable and he ducks. I, <laughs> yes. I, I, I get that. It has the unfortunate effect of coming across that Bishop in his rage has decided to shoot the ceiling. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, Which is less effective. It's always interesting. Wolverine's claws in Jay Lee's hands have somehow gotten twice as long. Um, (laughs) It's like they're silly putty and he's just kind of, you know, uh, wheedling them out. Another great crotch shot from Bishop. Jay Lee does love his crotch shots. Yeah, a constantly interesting issue. Also with Peter David's uh, character work and also with some great jokes. Because I do love the joke. It's such an obvious joke when Bishop shoves his gun into Cable's face and starts screaming. And Cable just goes, you should really switch to decaf. 
Um, (laughs) That's a very Peter David line and goes nicely with that Jubilee coffee scene we were talking about. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah, so this is an interesting issue, and I can see where Peter David's complaints are uh, talking about being pulled into this this series because this issue doesn't have anything to do with X-Factor. X-Factor's not on the cover. X-Factor barely makes an appearance, and um, I think the only person we really see is Havoc, who has like two lines or something. Oh no, Polaris is here too. But anyway, it's not an X-Factor issue. It features X-Men and X-Force. So very, very interesting choice to to do that. But I mean, you got to go where the story is 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 flowing, right? And so I guess that yeah. just happens yeah. to be where this yeah. happens to fall. Yeah, I mean, like, like I say, I enjoy it. But the main characters here are Bishop, Wolverine, and Cable, none of whom yeah. are in X-Force. By the way, the cliffhanger is also a bit weak. The, I think you're an X Factor. I'm sorry. The cliffhanger last time was really good because when Bishop and Wolverine confront Wolverine, you do go, "Oh, I'm interested. What's going to happen next?" Here, the cliffhanger is that the Reaper looks like he's about to decapitate Quicksilver, and you're just like, "Well, he's probably not going to decapitate Quicksilver." <laughs> I mean, it's it's it's. I, yeah. I don't I, I don't think the 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 resolution here is entirely surprising or stunning. Reaper was kind of like the dope of the MLF at this point too. I know he lost one hand to Shatterstar. He might have lost his other hand by this point. I can't remember. But like, whenever he got into a fight, like he always ended up losing a body part. So yeah, Quicksilver is um, probably going to have too many problems with him. He lost a foot in a couple of issues of X Factor before this. <laughs> what does yeah. he have? Left? <laughs> uh, yeah. James, do you have anything you want to say on this one? Yeah. Um, so, so Angel accidentally killing um, a member of the Mutant Liberation Front. Um, yeah. That plays into his character arc, kind of fighting with his dark side. I'll get more into that later, but that's kind of important. Um, yeah. And yeah, Bishop, Bishop, Wolverine, and Cable being together is like awesome. If you're, you know, like the target age group or whatever for this crossover at that point in time, like early '90s, you know, teenage boys or whatever, reading these, you got like the coolest characters all teaming up, you know, in one issue. So. So that was pretty cool. You get a lot of excuses to draw these giant dudes with guns and Wolverine <laughs> yeah. and stuff up, and just it's just real badass. So, so that was cool. I'm gonna actually disagree uh, a little bit on Jay Lee's art. Actually, I'm a big Jay Lee fan. I like him a lot. I know that he was still a little early in his career at this point, and I actually I didn't know who was inking this. I know you, you said something before that Al Milgram was yeah. inking it, and that kind of a Kind of raised my curiosity a little bit because I think Jay actually draws a little too advanced for like the printing technology and stuff at this time. Like if you look at what happens later on when he's drawing like Inhumans and he has like you know those those high tech like coloring studios and, and you get more of a he's he's kind of like an artist where if you just do like just black and white inks over him you can kind of lose some of that subtlety and I think that's kind of going on here. I still like it. I just think that. Um, Probably because I was introduced to him much later on. Like, I, I don't think I was buying the X Factor issues like real time when this was coming out. Yeah, I just I thought it was a little bit sketchy, like in a, in some parts. Yeah, there are different strokes. There are definitely parts where I'm like, what the heck are, are we looking at? Like on page 237, Gambit's face yeah. in the bottom corner is like, <laughs> what are what kind of face is that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Again, you know, without without seeing what the actual original pencils look like, it's you know, it's hard to say. Like I yeah. kind of I say the same thing about like uh Jim Lee's stuff from like the late eighties. 
like he was drawing so detailed that like it just didn't come through on like the quality of paper that they were using like it would get muddy you know but yeah, then like yeah. you look at it when they reprinted on nice paper and it's like oh wow this looks amazing but yeah they were kind of a i guess i guess it's like a criticism without really being a criticism because they were you know they were ahead of their time so. there i really like it but only Often, you know, when you sit down and study it a bit more, there are some narrative clarity issues where you are somewhat sitting there going, what on earth is happening? Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I know that I like the art and I enjoy it, but in terms of trying to follow the story, it can be a bit challenging. Yeah. And then he's also he's a very um, he's a very serious artist like and Peter David. You know, this isn't typical Peter David, but when you think of Peter David, he's like, you know, a kind of a lighthearted uh, you know, he's got a lot of jokes in his writing, and I think there's a little bit of a, a little bit of a styles clash there. But maybe, maybe that's just me. I just tend to gravitate toward the the more alternative side of comic artists, anyway. So, you know, looking through this book and looking at all of the people who fall into that Jim Lee camp, and then having Jay Lee as the the one that's you know daring to be different or whatever. I, I just appreciate that he's not trying to conform in the same way that uh, a lot of artists at the time were trying to yeah. do. Uh, I get it. Yep. I do. I do kind of wonder how Jay was allocated to this because you know he he wasn't the regular X Factor artist. He never so, did any other X Factor issues besides this, right? I think he just did these no. three. Just these three, yeah. No. So what? And and I mean, and he's not the you know, full artist on this. On executioner's song so quite what made them think we'll just interrupt peter's normal you know flow of artists and just tack this guy in i mean i enjoy it well, but it's not representative of x-factor at all that's a I good did. point too because yeah. they have they have so many like jim lee kind of clones like at this point that they could have just put you know any one of those guys on on those x-factor issues but they chose somebody whose style is is so different yeah i just i wonder editorially like you know what were they what were they thinking at that time well, I know that uh, Larry Stroman was uh, either having some deadline issues or something. Like he, he was kind of off and on the book a couple issues before. And then I think, Jared, you told me that he was moved over to Image. He was part of yeah. the Image Exodus. And so I, I wonder if they just kind of needed someone in a pinch because those Image guys was, didn't really give a lot of notice. Yeah, he was like wave two of the Image Exodus. Like he went yeah. over like a year into the thing. And I, I forget what he worked on, but he, he had some project around that time. So I wonder if there's a combination. And we also know Al Milgram is famous for being fast. So if they really needed someone in a pinch and Jay Lee was kind of the guy available and Al Milgram could do it quick, then here we go. We have a yeah. new creative team. Al Milgram and Jay Lee does not sound like a good combo on paper in my head. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, I I think this uh, the Jay Lee art is somewhat similar to the uh, Larry Stroman. You know, like more similar. They're more similar than than say Jay Lee is with Andy Kubert. Or that's true. That uh, is true. Yeah. Yep. That is Stroman was doing his own thing at this point. There, there, there's, yeah. I mean, say what you want about like you know his art or whatever, but there's nobody out there that was aping his style. You know, he was completely right. his own thing. Yeah, it was great. I I enjoyed uh, Stroman's run on X factor and so i can definitely see your point there jared this if they were looking they probably weren't looking specifically weren't looking for um a jim lee clone yeah i guess that would make sense because x factor always kind of was like the quirkier x-men title of this time so maybe they wanted to, to keep up that tone and if you look afterwards like the person who replaces jay lee is going to be joe quesada who also is i would say more oh, along the lines him. of Strowman than than jim lee yeah so yeah 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 
Very interesting. Very interesting. Well, okay. I think we're going to stop our episode for for the time being. Right there in the middle of this, we've we've been going on for a long time now. Uh, we still have half of the the executioner song to go. So we're going to pick this up again next week for all of you who are following along and uh, continue our story there. Uh, I want to thank you, James and Jared and Lars, for taking the time. Uh, for those of you listening, there were a lot of behind-the-scenes complications <laughs> to get this episode out, so I really want to thank the three of you for bearing with me and bearing with all of our uh, technical difficulties as we worked out how to make this roundtable happen. I'm Having glad it worked out. three times just made us better. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thanks, guys. It was a lot of fun. Yep, definitely. Yeah. Uh, okay, so for everybody who wants to, uh, to know, uh, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and on YouTube. Just search for Epic Marvel Podcast. We also have a, um, a Facebook group where we talk about Marvel's epic collections all day and every day. And I think Lars wants me to mention that he wrote a couple of Doctor Who books. <laughs> oh, I, what, I do? Oh, I do. Sure, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of course you do. Why, why not? Well, since you're not paying me, Curtis, again, I'm taking a, you know payment in that thing that writers prize the most, exposure. Exposure. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so if there's any Doctor Who fans uh, listening, I, um, with Lance Parkin, co-write uh, A History, which is the uh, definitive Doctor Who timeline, rolls nearly 2,500 Doctor Who stories into a single timeline and is almost a million words long. Oh, wow. So nice. a, nice. Great, a great birthday present. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Yeah, that sounds amazing. I want that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot. It was a lot. Yeah. <laughs> well, there we have it. I'm going to leave it at that, and we'll see everybody again next week for the last half of Executioner's Song. <laughs> <laughs>